Guys, 2021 comes to a close in a couple of days. And I'm so excited for this episode because I'm bringing you my top five most listened episodes of 2021. I do this every year. And I'm always so surprised of what you guys listen to the most. And interesting enough is it's been my compilation um, episodes where I bring up, you know, a topic that I've spoken about throughout the years and compile them into one long episode. And now I know the direction I'm going to go in for 2022 to give you guys the most value is that I'm going to look at previous episodes and then build upon them and then put them together so you have one full resource. And that's why this episode is close to freaking five hours long. So get ready, you guys, and strap in because this is going to be a jam-packed episode which I'm so excited about. But before I get into, you know, all the episodes, I want to thank every single one of you that's been supporting me throughout this entire year and all those people who have listened to me from last year, two years ago, three years ago, and even when I first started. So thank you so much for listening to me, me interviewing people, and my long-ass rambles about random shit. You guys are so amazing. And 2022 is going to be a big, big year for me for new projects and just exciting things. And I'm going to continue doing this podcast literally till I die. Like, this is one of the things that I've been thinking about this past year is like, how long am I going to do this podcast? And honestly, the answer that keeps popping through my head is until I can't do it anymore. So I'm about to embark to 500 episodes. I'm eventually going to hit 1,000, 2,000. Who knows how long this thing can go. All I know is that, you know, my podcast has been around for a while. My podcast is one of the most um, regular because I remember going down the rabbit hole of looking at other fitness podcasts and a lot of people haven't posted a new episode for a while or they were really consistent and kind of died off and they try to pick it pick it back up again but you know I'm going strong 2022 2023 24 25 26 I'm going to go strong and continue giving you the best fitness and health advice out there so without further ado we're going to take a trip back to episode 467 where we look at the bigger picture when it comes to fitness and health and weight loss. We're going to go to episode 460 and 462 and 463, all to deal with low back pain. This was a huge one. I did not think that you guys would love, you know, the anatomy stuff, the pain stuff, but we all know, and this is what I've been talking about this whole past year, about how if your body does not you know, function and move the way it needs to be, then you're not going to be successful long term in the gym to finally find 
success in the weight loss department because an injury like low back pain is going to prevent you from doing that. And I'm really excited to see that these three episodes where we go over low back pain and hinge points is in the top five of this entire year because I've said this in all three episodes most likely is that, you know, one out of three people have experienced low back pain to a point where they couldn't function on an everyday basis. So really excited to bring these three episodes back. And then the last one is about nutrition, supplements, and my own personal nutrition, which is another compilation episode. All five of these episodes are all compilation episodes. And obviously, I'm going to continue doing these. But I think what I'm going to do is do more solo episodes on the topics that have been the most popular and then eventually add them into one giant episode so you guys can have that reference. So let's get right into it. I'm really excited for these top five of 2021. So let's freaking just gear down and get ready for the next four and a half to five hours of information. Here we go. What is up, my podcast listeners? This is your host, Rafael Makuszewski. And I'm excited for today's episode because it's another compilation of... I believe four episodes where I talk about kind of bigger picture stuff that matters so much to the success for any fitness and health goal there is. And I think one of the first episodes, um, which is probably at least four years old, and I apologize for my awkwardness because I've been doing this a long time and now I can just like turn on the camera and like do my thing and not worry about anything. Whereas this first episode, I'm pretty sure I stumbled and mumbled on my words and was super awkward. So I apologize in advance. But um, the first episode I talk about redefining success. And I've spoken about this before on my podcast and you know, this whole concept of you know, what people think success is with fitness and health is to basically look like, you know, a model on a magazine cover, which is kind of ridiculous because that's equivalent to you going, well, I'm going to start playing, you know, pick up basketball on the weekends and having an expectation that if you continue practicing, like every Saturday, you're going to be able to play in the NBA. Like, that's not how that works, you know? But for the fitness and health industry, for some reason, everyone who starts exercising believes that's the end result. So that first episode, I kind of go through the whole concept of redefining success. And then the other episodes, I cover self-awareness, which is huge, huge people when it comes to um, seeing success. A lot of us are not self-aware of what we do, not only in our like habits to improve our health, but just overall in life. So it's a huge skill that we need to develop. And I also get into um, how we need to leave a health legacy. And it was probably two years ago where I really started thinking about this whole concept of a legacy. And, you know, in my 20s, I wasn't really thinking about shit like that because it's like 
you're, you're more reactive. But even though, you know, um, anyone really, probably most of us don't think about leaving a legacy behind. And I come up with this whole concept of like leaving a health legacy. Like, how do you want to be remembered um, when it comes to your fitness and health? Do you want to be remembered as that person that was so obsessed with dieting, that person that brings Tupperware containers to restaurants, that person that always says no to social events because you don't want to cheat on your diet, or that person that's just obsessed with every little thing when it comes to fitness and health but still doesn't see the result? I think these are some big, 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 you know big picture things that most people don't think about and they end up frustrated not seeing their you know true potential and true outcome of what their bodies can do so I'm really excited to bring all this together and I think this entire episode will be close to an hour because these are all my little short ones that I do so sit back relax enjoy and learn a thing or two when it comes to fitness and health, bigger picture stuff to finally see success that you've been wanting. Here we go, without further ado, here's the first episode. I posted this video about um, redefining what successful weight loss or success in fitness and health really is. Because I feel and I find that, you know, working over the years with so many different people that, you know, I get a new client and they're like, boom, I want to, I want to lose 60 pounds. I'm like, awesome. But, you know, maybe losing 60 pounds isn't what you actually want or what you need to get to. Because, you know, when people make the decision that they're going to be healthy from now on. They automatically assume that they have to lose weight, that they have to have this huge transformation to make it a success. You know, for me, I lost 60 pounds. It was a huge transformation. And I believe that it was on purpose. That was my journey. I was supposed to be on that journey because now look where I'm at, where I'm helping so many people, not only locally, but also internationally and in different places in the world. And that was my journey, my transformation. That was my success for weight loss. Maybe you or someone that you know that's really struggling with weight loss and is not seeing the weight come off, maybe because you know they're trying to do all the right things, but it hasn't clicked. And maybe their success should be redefined to something else. So here's an example. When I've been training a lot of general population people who have their own businesses, they have multiple kids, they have this and that, they have so many different responsibilities, maybe their success in health and fitness is to be able to go to the gym once a week with ever, without ever missing one appointment. And with that one day a week, their joints feel better, you know, their back doesn't hurt anymore, they have energy to run around and chase their kids, maybe that's what your success should be. 
you know, maybe you have to make make that mindset shift and not think, you know, I'm only going to be happy if I lose 15 pounds. You know, what if you're not, you know, emotionally and like physically and also like in the time of your life ready to actually do that because that does take a lot of sacrifice. Maybe redefine what your goal is. You know, we always talk about like goal setting and like you need to um, pick a goal and everyone's like, yeah, I want to lose 10 pounds. I want to, I want to do this, but no one ever talks about, you know, yes, my goal is to lose 15 pounds, but right now in my life, I don't think I can make the sacrifices to, you know, track what I'm eating, to see how many calories I'm at, to prep all my meals, to make sure I do this and make sure I do that. Maybe it's not your time yet, but maybe your success for health is to do that example I gave earlier of one day a week or going outside for a walk five days a week for 10 minutes. And if you use that to kind of get the momentum going and you keep consistent at that, you know, walk or going to the gym one day a week, then when you're actually ready and you're like, you know what, I've been doing good, I've been consistent, I have a little bit more time on my schedule, I'm gonna focus on my nutrition, I'm gonna focus on this thing, I'm gonna focus on that thing, and then I will get to my ultimate goal of 15 pounds. Not everyone has to have a huge transformation to be successful. I think people in the general population nowadays are successful if they can maintain a happy and healthy body. If they can move better, feel better, wake up in the morning without feeling like they were beat up by a two by four and it takes them like 20 minutes to get out of bed, then you've won. Like, that's amazing. Think about our world today, how it's structured. Our bodies are not built for the world that we live in right now. You can literally stay at home, work from home, sitting down, have your groceries, you know, delivered to you, get a book from Amazon within 24 hours, and hell, if you live in certain parts of the world, you can get stuff from Amazon through a drone dropped to your door, you never have to leave. And now, you're supposed to get up and start moving and sweating, and you're like, oh my God, this doesn't feel good, and yeah, you know what I mean? So, I think for all the people listening who are just fitness enthusiasts, I want you to really think and reevaluate what your actual goal is. It doesn't have to be a huge transformation. And all the coaches listening with your clients, you know, like I've seen this a bunch of times where cl- or coaches push their own goals and their agenda onto their client without actually communicating with them and figuring out if that's what they really want. Look at the clues and things that they mention and see if they actually really, really want to do that huge transformation. Maybe just getting them consistent with, you know, drinking a glass of water every day. That could be huge. It could be that small. Focus on the small wins and shift the mindset of, I need to have a drastic change to make this worthwhile or even worth doing. That's just my take. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up, uh, someone requested me to talk about sugar and I was like thinking about 
you know, what should I, you know, bring up when it comes to this? Because there's so much research out there where um, sugar is bad for you, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I'm no expert when it comes to that kind of stuff. But when it comes to calories, food, I love numbers. And I actually want to share with you um, an example I actually sent to my client where when we started talking about um, nutrition, I asked her, you know, like, what's her routine when it comes to coffee? I always ask about this because you can find a lot of missing links when it comes to nutrition when you focus on one little thing. So um, she mentioned to me that she goes to Starbucks twice a day to get a venti. I'm actually pulling up an email, uh, a venti caramel macchiato. And I'm like, okay, I have no clue what that is because if you know me, I drink my coffee black, nothing in it, and I've never like ordered any of these kind of drinks. So I'm like, okay, awesome. Uh, I told her, you know, maybe if you like find a less calorie dense drink, but it still has some sweetness to it, maybe it'll be a better, you know, fit. But I'm like, I, I told her that I'm gonna go look up the nutritional value for it and send you an email with all the info and what I think. And I've done this with other clients too, and it's a very huge eye-opener. So when I went on Starbucks's website, that drink um, contains 310 calories and 42 grams of sugar. Not that bad when you have one. So then I go on in my email, and I'm like, I'm literally reading it right now. Um, I said like, you know, if you take two of those per day, you're consuming 620 calories and 84 grams of sugar a day. Now, if you span that to your work week, Monday to Friday, that comes out to 3,100 calories and 422 grams of sugar. Fuck, right? Now we're talking some serious shit. So the issue here, if you know, all the coaches know this, but the people who are listening are just fitness enthusiasts, technically one pound of uh, weight is you know, 3,500 calories. And now per week, we're hitting 3,100 calories. So then when I told her, imagine this, you go through your entire month and you're sitting at 12,400 calories and 1,680 grams of sugar. Holy fuck, right? So this is the issue. Just from, just from um, your one, your two coffees a day, it doesn't even matter what you're doing for exercise or if you're eating healthy, this is what's fucking you up. And I tell people like, this is something you can work on because you can easily change it with small progressive changes. So my suggestion to her was like, instead of getting a venti, which is fucking huge, go to a grande. Like you don't have to be like, oh, cold turkey, I'm gonna eliminate it completely. Just cut it down. So then when I showed her the um, calories of the venti, you know, it's still a lot, but over a month, she would um, cut out 2,400 calories and um, 1,020 grams of sugar. Like, that's huge. 
like think about that over a year span like you would actually lose some weight just because of that one little change going from a venti to a grande that's not a huge like out there request if you had a client struggling with weight loss so i always look for small things that people can do in their nutrition that doesn't seem that much you know time and effort so i would highly recommend for all the fitness enthusiasts out there look at the calories that can sneak up on you and especially your coffee and you just change one little thing and it will amount to a lot and all the coaches out there i highly recommend you do this little like exercise with your uh clients and you'd be surprised how much they'll change over a course of a couple months just cutting down from one size to the smaller size um the other thing I wanted to bring up that's on my list is um, my update with what's going on with me. Because, you know, if you've been listening to my show for a while, um, I've always had a tough time binge eating. Like, I've always come from a place where eat super clean during the week and just hammer it out and get super, super stuffed with a lot of crap of food over the weekend and you know, I've been working on this project what I'll always also bring up after this but you know I want to do a photo shoot for it for the exercises and my issue is like man I just don't feel good about myself to be photographed or whatever so I'm like you know what I'm gonna see uh, if I can cut down and get a little bit more defined. And um, I started tracking my calories and macros to the point that I calculated every single gram that was going into my body and weight started just coming off really quickly. And I tracked very, very specifically for I would say two months before I was like, fuck it, can't do this anymore. Because we all know that if you give restrictions, you can only last for so long. So after the two months, like I started at 168 and I went down in two months to, um, I think it was 155. And I was like, shit, like I haven't been this light since I did my stupid cutting before my wedding two years ago. and But like looking in the mirror, I was like, oh, I actually look pretty good. And the weird thing is that even when the two months passed and I tracked, the two months where I was tracking, I didn't binge. I still allowed myself to have things that, you know, if I wanted a couple beers, I had some beers. If I wanted to... I'll go out for dinner with my wife. I did that. But for some reason, I didn't have this urge to overeat and feel like shit doing it. So I was like, hey, this is strange because from what I've read, from what I know, if you give someone restrictive, um, a restrictive diet, you're going into the danger zone. I'm like, okay, so after the two months, I kind of stopped tracking and I just kind of ate similar to what I did because after the two months I kind of knew you know 
what a certain what, what my size a serving size should be for protein fats and carbs and I kind of continued doing that and I started getting leaner and leaner and this last month I started tracking again and as of like yesterday when I weighed myself I'm at 148 so I lost 20 pounds and I'm pretty lean I'm pretty happy with how I look right now and I still haven't had a binge craving or binge episode and I'm really curious to why so yesterday um, I had a busy day and you know I was driving home and I called my wife and I'm like you know what let's let's go get some Indian food and I know Indian food for me is a trigger food where I will overeat like crazy so I'm, and I knew this going in so I'm like okay what can I do so I ordered less than usual and I'm like oh, I don't know if it's gonna be enough I'm gonna like force myself to eat more and yesterday my wife and I are eating and I stopped like I just stopped and I'm wondering if because I restricted myself like counting calories and macros and I adjusted my portion sizes that my stomach and hormones or whatever got used to that kind of size of food and then when I had the opportunity to like binge and I got to the point where I'm getting like that I'm supposed to get full, I got full faster and my stuffed feeling happened a lot sooner than it would usually when I was used to always binging on the weekend. So I'm kind of curious if that's one of the reasons. So I'm going to actually research this further and give you guys an update if I'm right or I'm just speaking out of my ass. But it's kind of interesting that, you know, self-experiment. I always do self-experiments on nutrition on me. And the interesting thing is... I haven't had a binge episode um, since I started this little project. Um, the other thing is the project that I'm working on. So I am starting my own fitness um, training system ebook that I've been writing like crazy the last literally just a week and a half. And I'm about 7,000 words deep into this thing. So here's a little preview of it. Um, basically my own training philosophy of how I coach my clients from point A to point Z I'm putting all my thoughts and methods and systems into one fitness book and I'm actually really excited because I've had coaches on my show reach out and say hey I was listening to your solo episode about this where did you learn that from and how did you interpret it and then you know we would go back and forth in emails I've actually gone on Skype calls with some of my audience and that's still open to anybody out there like if you want to go on a Skype call with me because you have a couple questions like fuck it let's do it like I'm here to help I want to make the industry better so if you at all want to learn something from me because I've mentioned something in my past episodes hit me up on an email Facebook Instagram I don't care I've done it in the past I will carve out half an hour to a full hour with you and it's always nice to chat with the audience to kind of get a feeling of what they're going through, what they want to learn, and what they're doing in their own career. Because I also like learning from other people too. Because, you know, maybe you do one little different thing when it comes to this system, and I can implement it to what I do. Then we just get this industry on a whole a lot better. Um, so. I'm really excited about this project. 
I don't know when I'm going to be able to release it. I have a goal for myself for September, but who knows? Like every time I sit down and write, it just keeps spiraling into like, oh, I need to add this. I need to add that. So in a nutshell, it's a combination of like a training method from the FMS, some DNS principles, stuff from Charlie Weingroff, things from Stu McGill, things from Strong First and the RKC, things from the FRC. Like there's all these different systems, principles, and theories that I interpreted into my own system and I'm gonna share that with everybody. And hopefully that's gonna make one person change the way they train and help more people. If that is what I can do, then I would be happy with the kind of project. Um, and the last thing I wanna bring up is I had this conversation with Chris and Scott Dixon yesterday. And you know, if you saw my post on social, uh, I had the opportunity and privilege to put her through an assessment because I'll be training her online. And first of all, I was like stunned that she would message me and want to do that with me because she could have chosen anybody in the industry, any coach that I look up to. And I was like very humbled that she would actually pick me to do this. So, you know, after the assessment, we ended up going out for a couple drinks and we started chatting and I can't remember how this was brought up, but we started talking about how important it is for people to actually show their true colors of who they are. And my biggest struggle uh, growing up was always showing, you know, people who I am truly. And I think people who do it really, really well, someone like Mark Fisher, and if you don't follow him, I highly suggest you do. He's the epitome of, you know, not being afraid of who he is showing his like inner weird and I think that's like one of my goals is like I'm slowly showing that because I think you know growing up in a immigrant household where there was a certain standard and that kind of like eliminated how you were allowed to be and then you go into a place like high school where you need to be able to fit in, blend in, and things like that, um, you kind of lose sight of who you actually are. And I've been realizing that in the last kind of year and a half to two years where you want to show that inner weird, inner silliness, because that's what's going to allow you to attract more people, and you're going to create that tribe. So any coach out there that's kind of trying to be too professional, I'll call it, um, you know, release the inner you you know don't be afraid to be yourself and you'll see how many more people you're going to attract based on your personality and that's what i've been trying to do personally for a while and i'm slowly opening that gate and door to let you guys further into who i am but um that's going to be it for this episode so hopefully everybody on instagram live that's joining me uh got something out of it so i'm gonna sign off of instagram and then i'm gonna finish off this recording so today's topic that i'm gonna try to keep under 10 minutes is the topic of gratitude so for the longest time i've been hearing people chat about this idea of gratitude and i just never really understood it until you know I don't know if 
people are like me, but I have this thing where if I say take a shower without any music playing or, you know, walk my dog and it's complete silence, my brain starts really, really going. And, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Gary Vaynerchuk and he always talks about gratitude. And I think as an individual, I've always practiced it without actually knowing. So I come from a back, an immigrant background where a lot of my childhood, teenage years, I just never had a lot. And anytime I got something that I really wanted, I was so happy and appreciative for that thing, that experience or what it was. You know, like in a good example where, you know, because I trained some pretty successful people that are really well off. And when I tell them that I've never been to Disneyland in my life, they're like, oh my God, like, how do you live? <laughs> right? Because for those people that are privileged, going to Disneyland is like a yearly thing. And growing up, like, my parents never had money to do vacations like that. But, you know, going on a vacation, like camping, for example, it's a cheaper option. I was super, super appreciative for that experience. So when I started my business and started making some money and I was able to, for example, go to Mexico or take my wife to Jamaica for our honeymoon, like those those experiences I hold so dear in my heart and being able to have that opportunity, I'm like, holy fuck, there's people out there that would never experience this. I am so lucky. So gratitude, how am I going to tie this in to fitness and health? Really simply. A lot of times when people, I, I move my hands a lot when I talk. <laughs> For those listening and not watching this video, if you watch this video, I use my hands a lot when I'm explaining and I can only imagine how I talk to patients and clients in person when I do this. Anyway, gratitude. So many people when they start their fitness and health journey, they don't show appreciation or their gratitude for how far they have come. A lot of times people make the mistake of you know, thinking, oh, you know, I'm not at my goal weight. So everything I've done doesn't really matter. You know, they have this idea in their head that they have to look this certain way because that's what they imagined. They have this number or inches of a number where they want to be and everything leading up to that moment that they haven't reached yet doesn't mean shit. But imagine that, you know, this past year that you've been really focusing on your health, you took the time to, you know, appreciate what you've done. And I tell this to clients all the time. When they're feeling down and feel like they haven't achieved anything because the scale's not going the right way or they just don't feel like they changed and physically you've seen them change, something that I bring up is like, hey, Scott, Last year when you started with me, you never exercised in your life. Now, you are exercising three days a week, consistently. That's never happened in your life. 
that is huge. And if I can make that mindset shift where they're like, holy shit, yeah, you know what? I've been training three days a week for a year straight. That is huge. Celebrate that. Like, make those little things, those small victories, a big deal. And you'll be able to keep that kind of motivation, that that momentum going. People don't take the time to look at the little things, you know, and really appreciate it. Things like, hey, Scott, a year ago, you used to sleep four hours a night. Now you're averaging seven and you have more energy. And then he goes, oh shit, yeah, you're right. You have to constantly remind yourself of your process and be thankful for your success that you've actually did it. Because what happens is when you keep thinking that way and you know that every day you've done at least one thing, for example, to improve your health, that goes a long way. Gratitude is, so my birthday post, so many people enjoyed that because it was, you know, things I've learned in life really quickly and if you heard my podcast, sorry, it's going to get loud because there's people outside mowing the grass. This is real. When you look at building yourself as an individual, as a human being to improve your personal development, that goes hand in hand with anything you want to achieve in life. Being able to understand gratitude to be self-aware enough to realize how much you've achieved even though you didn't get to your end goal because most people's end goals are you know, astronomical of what they expect because usually when people have a weight loss goal, they wanna look like someone on a cover of a magazine and realistically, it's like you need to give up your entire life to look that, that way. So now you have this unrealistic expectation and everything you've been doing consistently that's like a huge accomplishment for most people, you're like, meh, it's nothing. Learning gratitude and being self-aware enough to understand what you've achieved so far is an amazing feat that most people will never get to is going to change a lot of things in your life. If you are listening to this and you know, you start thinking of like, okay, what have I achieved this past year that I haven't been doing previously? to improve my health, that list is probably gonna be pretty long. Even if you failed a billion times trying so many different fucking diets out there, you're still going the right direction because that means you are dedicated to improving your health compared to the person who's tried one diet, didn't work, they're like, meh, nothing's gonna work for me, I'm just gonna be fat for the rest of my life. No. The people who go on yo-yo diets are the ones that are so determined to finally find an answer to improve their health. It's just they haven't figured that out yet and they quit too early. You know, sometimes it's just like one little step further and you hit that wall down and you're running. You're full-blown sprint and you finally figured it out. So many people quit way too early, you know, like, I'm a huge fan of rap music and you know when you follow these rappers that are trying to make a name for themselves, they're like one song away from being the next big hit. 
you know? So if you are into rap music, that band Migos and Quavo, like those guys, they've been around forever. And it took one song for them to blow up everywhere to the point where they're on every single top 40 radio um, show, which is crazy to think. But if you looked at them five years ago, nobody knew who they were. But they were hustling, working day and night, producing music that no one would listen to until they had one song that was the tipping point. And if you look at their careers, it just like skyrocketed. That example can play into what I'm saying right now. People quit too early. Keep trying. Keep trying. What's the worst that's going to happen? Doesn't work? Try something else. Keep trying. And be grateful that you have the opportunity to keep trying. Because some people can't. You know, sometimes people have, you know, a medical disease that prevents them doing what you're able to do. Imagine if you had an injury, a reoccurring injury, that prevents you from exercising. And all you have is food. And even then, sometimes that can be a struggle if you're injured. Like, be grateful for the ability that you have. That's going to change a lot. It might sound woo-woo or whatever, but weight loss, there's a bigger picture. It's more than inches and pounds. It's you as an individual. You need to grow as a person. And when you grow as a person, a lot of things in life are going to improve you know, personally, fitness and health, financially, your spouse, finding your spouse, like all those things are interconnected together. I'm going to leave it right there because I could keep going. This is episode 266, I believe. And a lot of my solo episodes have been more about the bigger picture. And, you know, when I first started in the industry, I was just like, this is what you got to do. This is how you're going to be successful. Eat clean, sleep, work out, do all that stuff. But as we all know, there's more to it than just do this and you'll get this in, uh, outcome. And yeah, there is a lot of people out there that do really well on that, right? So like, for example, me in two months when I was in high school, I dropped 60 pounds because I literally read everything there was that I could get my hands on about fitness and health. And it all kind of said the same thing of make sure you sleep a lot, eat a lot of veggies, eat a lot of good lean protein and work out a ton. And I did that right off the bat, like literally the next day, did that seven days a week and boom, there you go. It happens. People see success doing that. But the 99% out there, that haven't seen that success because like everyone knows diets work. Everyone knows that exercise works, but a lot of people can't stick to it. So for the longest time, I've been really challenging myself to figure out what the fuck is going on with people like that. What's, what's holding them back. And I said this in my last episode with Jen, about this topic of happiness. Think about that. When you're happy, you have all the motivation in the world to continue going on. An example is, you know, someone, 
because I have a newfound love for Harry Potter. If someone really enjoyed the Harry Potter series and they picked up a book and they started reading and they were like, holy shit, this book is giving me fulfillment. I feel happy while reading it. You better believe that that person's probably going to read that book every single day until it's done or be one of those crazies that end up reading it in one day because it gave them fulfillment and happiness in here. So I started thinking about it. I'm like, why can't fitness produce the same feeling? Why can't getting healthy be about fulfillment and happiness? Now I really, really get this idea. I really, really understand it. So I started asking myself, what am I doing differently with my in-person and online clients that have been with me forever? I make it an enjoyable experience. That's my job. I try to make fitness and health not feel like a chore or a punishment, similar to my other solo episode about fitness is not a punishment, into something that is fulfilling. You know, I have several clients that have been with me for eight years. And, you know, I want to, I would like to think it's because of my awesome, charming personality. But it's most likely due to how I structure the hour, how I converse with the person, how I set out simple goals, see them achieve, and it becomes part of their life. They get fulfillment out of it. Like, I don't think I've ever had a client, like, I don't remember the last time I had a client where they weren't looking forward to their workout, you know? And this comes back to this idea of happiness. I want to challenge everyone out there who's struggling right now to find a piece of health or fitness in their life that gives them happiness. So an example is, you know, for me, I enjoy going to the gym to challenge my body. I enjoy going to the gym where I've created a goal and I, every time I show up, I'm getting closer to that goal. And a good example that happened recently was hitting my 300 pound deadlift. You know, I had a year and a half that, or even two years that I set that goal out and there was a lot of ups and downs, but I knew that if I kept showing up, I was going to get there. And when I got there, I filmed it. I felt awesome. And I was like, holy shit, sky's the limit. I can't wait to get back. So that was my example. Another example is, I've had people in the past where they trained with me and it wasn't their thing. And I always told myself, you know what? Not everyone's going to like what I like. Not everyone's going to like the whole gym idea, but maybe there's something else out there that promotes their, you know, happiness when it comes to fitness and health. And there's one person in particular that I trained probably six years ago. Um, she just wanted to have fun. And I remember having a conversation with her and she's like, would you ever like incorporate like Zumba movements in my warm up? And I'm like, mm, well, it's not really my thing. And I don't see myself doing Zumba movements and then you following along with me because that's that just that's just not my jam. And I told her like I train a little bit differently than that. And she also she saw the benefit of training, but it's just it wasn't, you know, 
it didn't give her that happiness, that fulfillment. So I didn't want to fail her. So what I did was I looked around, asked around and found a great Zumba instructor. And one day she came in and I was like, you know what? As much as I want you to keep seeing me, I know that you probably won't be successful long term if you continue seeing me because you're going to get to a point where you're like, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm going to quit. And I was like, my major goal is to make sure you don't quit fitness and health ever. So I referred her to a Zumba instructor locally and she ended up killing it. She goes every single, almost every single day to Zumba classes and she loves it. You know? Yeah, she could probably get stronger lifting heavy shit or do some more mobility stuff to help her shoulder, but she's finding fulfillment and happiness from just doing Zumba and it's good for her health. She's moving and she's not sitting on her couch and not doing anything. And another good example, and I changed this way of thinking probably four years ago when CrossFit got so popular, like so popular. I absolutely hated it. I hated it. I thought it was stupid. People are getting injured. It's unsafe. But the amazing thing that CrossFit does is they build such a strong community and it attracts people to go. And I looked at it, I was like, holy shit. Like, an example is that at my clinic, we have a lot of CrossFit patients and they're all the same to the point where it's almost like a family. And they would never, ever leave their families. They have such support for one another. They hang out outside the gym. They do everything together. They are like bonded and they get so much happiness and fulfillment from showing up in their box and doing the wad and whatever. Like that's an amazing thing. Find a fitness thing, a health thing that brings fulfillment and happiness inside you because that's going to be the best motivation ever. You following a 30 day cleanse diet bullshit, whatever you found online because your friend did this ketogenic hybrid of a diet and lost a bunch of weight and you think they found their happiness. Fuck that. Don't do that. That's not going to like help you long term. I want people to change their lives that when they're 60, 70, 80, 90, they're still putting around doing some sort of form of exercise because it brings them happiness. That's the ultimate goal. That's success. <sighs> I'm going to stop it right there because I'm over my time of 10 minutes. I'm going to try to keep this under 10 minutes. Oh boy, here we go. So what I want to talk about, self-awareness. I probably spoke on this topic a year ago probably around a year ago and it's worth bringing up again because a lot of times I think why so many people struggle and fail not only at fitness and health but for anything in life you know I'm working with a handful of online clients and every time I start with a new client in person or online they all have this like huge motivation to like finally get their health in order and see success and they have it all figured out. They can't wait to start. And when it's actually go time, things fall apart. And I've seen this happen over and over and over again. And you probably 
have seen it as a coach and you probably have experienced it as a person trying to get their health in check. And I always wondered like, why? Why is this happening? Why does this always happen to people that, you know, get this high coming up here to like change their lifestyle completely by going to the gym, eating better, cooking, whatever it is. And then out of nowhere, just fizzle out after like two days because of X, Y, and Z. And to be honest, I think it's the self-awareness piece. If you think about it, like, if you are not self-aware enough to understand what you're taking on, you're going to fail right off the bat. If you truly take a moment to step back and reflect and really evaluate your life, then that's when you can see success and this goes back to like simple planning you know when you want to save money you don't go oh yeah i'm so excited to save money because in a year i can like save an extra 10 grand and then that's it no you know that you have to go into your banking select a thing where it automatically takes out 300 dollars, whatever it is and it will just automatically happen. But there was some sort of planning to it. There was an action step that had to be taken in order for you to save money because you had to go online, select an option and authorize payments to be taken out of your account into your savings every single week or month or whatever you wanna do. It's just like fitness and health. If you don't take that extra step to make it happen, it's just wishful thinking, you know? If you don't take that extra step of taking that money out every month, then you're just hoping for the best that, you know, as you go through your busy life, you're going to be like, oh yeah, let me get on my phone and transfer some money to my savings. No, that doesn't happen. In this day and age, everything has to be so quick and we almost have to like not think it just has to happen automatically. So when it comes to fitness and health, you need to plan it out. You need to create an action plan. And when you do that, you start realizing, holy shit, maybe I don't have time to do this. How do I rearrange my priorities? So one thing I learned early on in my career that I feel is like the key to my success is planning my entire year, my entire year. So every October, which is coming up really quick, and I'm gonna be doing this with my wife for the first time because she has some big, big goals that she wants to achieve. And I told her this is going to be perfect. You need to sit down and create like a brainstorming session of everything you want to accomplish in this next year of 2020. And I always tell people, think of the stuff that, you know, if money was an issue, time wasn't an issue or any kind of thing holding you back, what would it be? Start writing those things down and then actually like reverse engineer it and see if you can actually do it. You know, say you want to save $10,000 in this next year. How does that look like in a, in a year? How does that look like per quarter, per month, per week, per day? And then what you do is, you know, simple math. Okay, I want to save 10 grand. So you divide that by, you know, a quarter. Okay, well, that's how much you need to have in one quarter of the month. How much is that per month? You calculate that, and I think 10,000 divided by 12 is 833 and something, something cents. Um, and then what is that per month, and what is that per week, and what is that per day? And take an actual physical planner 
for the year and write that in. So then every day or every week where you get a payment taken out and put into your account, you can check off that that happened. And then every time you check up every week, every month, every quarter, and now it's 2021, you're like, holy shit, I have 10 grand in my bank account. All because you planned it out, wrote it down, and started being a little bit more self-aware in the situation that you're in. So what about fitness and health? Say you have a goal of losing 20 pounds. How does that look like in a year? Well, you need to exercise more, you need to eat better. How do we put those things in tangible, you know, reverse engineering process? All right, so you probably need to commit yourself to like three days a week of training, for example, um, meal prepping, and then doing it. So on your calendar, every quarter, every month, every week, every day, you start checking it off and seeing if you're doing it. And that keeps you accountable, which is another huge piece in this whole puzzle. You have a, a booklet that is going to keep you accountable. Every little check mark is one step closer. And before you know it, the more checks you get off each box of working out and eating better, in 2021, after a year, you're like, holy shit, I lost 20 pounds, I look amazing. But, for example, let's play devil's advocate, you start planning your year in October and you have this goal of 20 pounds and you're writing all these goals and now you're writing in your planner and you're seeing like how busy your day is with work, with birthdays, with kid activities, with whatever hobbies you're in and all that bullshit. Maybe working out three days a week is not gonna work out for you. Maybe it's only one. Maybe it's time to take a step back and maybe reshuffle your priority list. Maybe having an extra hour to exercise a day compared to binge watching whatever show it is you're watching right now would be a huge change. You know, when you start writing things down and reevaluating what your day looks like, what your week looks like, really puts things in perspective then you have that awareness of like shit no wonder I've never been successful at this fitness and health thing my calendar doesn't allow me to do it I literally wake up at 5 a.m get to work at 6 pick up the kids at this time go to home to do this and I have to do that and now the kids are asleep and now it's 10 30 so maybe it's time to reset priorities if you didn't do the small little exercise that takes maybe an hour on the weekend for yourself, which is the most important person in your life, and it should be, um, now you understand why you've been failing. You've been throwing on an extra thing that doesn't even fit into your life. So maybe being realistic because you are a mother of three kids that need your attention and you're trying to build your business at the same time and you're barely getting five hours of sleep in, it might not be realistic with your goal. Set realistic expectations, but you need to be self-aware enough to know what you're capable of. Maybe when you start planning out your goals and you see that every night you spend three hours watching TV, damn we found a huge opportunity where we can fit in your fitness and health 
<sighs> Self-awareness, people, it is huge. Writing things down is huge. Grabbing a physical piece of paper with a pen that fits in your hand that's not your phone can do some powerful things. You just gotta take that little extra effort. You gotta take that little extra effort that most people don't want to do. That's what separates from failure and success. You know, make 2020 a year of success and not another year of failure when it comes to fitness and health. And let's change your life. All right. That's it for me, you guys. Thank you for listening to me ramble on. You guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I love you guys. What's up, my podcast listeners? This is your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and I'm excited to chat with you guys today doing another, you know, presentation-styled podcast. And excuse me while I move shit out of my way so I can move my chair and get comfortable. Um, I'm psyched about today's episode because we're going to talk about a topic that I've never brought up on my show. And it's only because um, it's something I've learned over the years in the clinic. And we're going to get probably right into it. And then I'll give you guys a little update on the book and everything else. So we're going to go over something called hinge points. And to me, hinge points are really, really interesting because it just showcases how our body can um, literally adapt to the stresses we place on it. And that's the whole beauty of our bodies, that it constantly adapts to the, you know, feedback or stimulus that we give to it and working in a society where our environments are not built to what we're supposed to be presents many 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 challenges as to why we end up injured tight this is sore my knees are bugging me things like that and I think you know to kind of get this going in the right context like I think a lot of people miss the whole boat on you know this concept of I woke up and my neck hurts or my shoulder hurts I'm gonna go see a physio chiro massage and it should be better in theory yes they can help you know subside the effects of pain, improve your movement quality, and get you back to doing what you do every single day. But we've never actually got to the root cause to what we're trying to figure out or why that's happening. So an example is like, you know, you you have high blood pressure, you go to uh, your doctor, here's high blood pressure meds. It helps you right there and then, but it doesn't eliminate the main issue of why um, you have high blood pressure, right? Things like diet, exercise, sleep quality, those things are going to fix that. But people prefer the faster way because it's like, well, I don't have time to do that kind of shit. I need to like go on with my day. I need to be able to pick up my kids. I need to go do this and all my responsibilities and being an adult, which fucking sucks, that, that kind of shit, right? But 
if you look at this whole kind of, you know, extended healthcare system where people go to chiros, physios, and RMTs for musculoskeletal issues, they almost kind of expect the same thing. They kind of expect that when I go see this medical professional, my knee, ankle, hip, low back is going to get better and I can go right back to what I was doing. Sometimes that works out, you know, maybe you have this like amazing practitioner that just has that gift that the moment they play their hands on your shoulder, back, hip, whatever it is, they know exactly what to do. But sometimes, most of the time, you know, you get that period of like, oh, I feel better. I'm going to go back to what I'm doing. And then you're back to square one. Why is that? It's our environment, right? I've been saying this on the podcast for so long and we need to start realizing it. Like if you look at an evolutionary standpoint of Homo sapiens, which is us, like us human beings, you know, a thousand years ago or whenever our species of who we are finally existed, we were meant to do certain things. Now, in our world today, we fucking sit all the time. We don't move like we used to. We don't eat like we used to. So that's going to present some challenges down the way, down the road if you continue going down that path. But for some reason, people just assume that this is normal. Like we have all this technology that makes our life easier. But at the same time, it's also kind of like crippling us. You know, like I move every single day. I exercise. I try to eat healthy. I try not to consume too much alcohol, even though it's fucking beer is delicious. Um, I do all the right things. But like my back gets tight. My hips get tight because I'm on my fucking laptop. Like literally right now, I'm on my laptop for a good 30 minutes. And before this, I was like working on my social media for 90 minutes. And that's, it's already starting to add up where, you know, maybe a thousand years ago, I would wake up, go walk somewhere, go find food, come back. Like there always would be something, right? So literally our environment is causing us to adapt to it. It's making us adapt to it to become more efficient at it. So literally every time you sit down, your body goes, oh, we've been here before. You've done this multiple times. I'm going to try to become more efficient at sitting for you so then you don't burn as many calories. Because when we burn calories, your body goes into a state where like, oh my God, I don't know what we're going to eat next. So I got to like preserve our energy. That's why when you start exercising and you know, you're doing lunges by like rep number five, six, seven, eight, you're not going as low. You're trying to compensate. You're trying to cheat because your body's like, oh my God, what are you doing to me? Like, let's preserve our energy. Let's not die. Right. But kind of going on a tangent there, but I wanted to give some context of why hinge points happen, right? We're adapting to the environment placed on us. So um, I'm going to do that screen share and hopefully it all works out to our, oh, there we go. So I'm going to take this out. You guys can already see a preview of what we're going to go through, but I want to make myself a little bit bigger. All right, hinge points. I believe this is the one that I want to know. This one? Yeah. I'm going to look at this one first. All right. Good example here. 
So this is a flexion hinge. So for the most part, when people do their everyday steps, so say, you know, today's Sunday, and if you're like me, you like cleaning the house on Sundays to make it fresh and organized for the week before you mess it up again. And say you have shit laying around the house from Monday, and you go decide to pick up box, chair, fucking cat, whatever it is, most people, at least the general population, will end up hinging through their spine and not through their hips here. This is the typical um, position that most people fall into, and repetitively, repetitively, over and over and over again, your spine's not going to like that. It's going to eventually tell you to F off. Um, kind of stolen this from Dr. Stuart McGill, he does an assessment where he'll ask his patients to take off their shoes and put them on their shoes, and he watches how they hinge. Is it through the spine or is it through the hips? Most of the time it's the spine. And already we have one clue of, you know, this may be the reason why you're experiencing back pain. Not necessarily even low back pain, right? It might be just pain through here. So let's think about this. Say this is your natural pattern, flexing through, this is called kind of your TL junction. And we'll go to a, another slide on that later. But imagine that you're so used to doing this instead of using your hips. So every Sunday you decide to clean and pick something up, you're constantly doing this. And it's funny enough because a lot of people will end up getting a sore back over the weekend. And us as practitioners, we're constantly like trying to figure out like what did you do differently than what you do during the week? And, you know, in the summer, it's usually, oh, you know, we started gardening or planting crap. So you're bending over for long periods of time doing this or you help someone move. Or in the winter, it's like, oh, I had to shovel snow and I haven't done that in a fucking year and my back is out, right? Things like that add up. So let's get rid of this image for a second and let's look at that spine image that I had up. So I mentioned like TL junction. TL junction is literally an area where this area here is your lumbar spine and then this is your thoracic spine. A lot of hinge points tend to happen between the lumbar section and going into the thoracic area. So kind of like that T10 to T12, um, which is like your thoracic vertebrae. And these are just abbreviations for that. But usually that's where people will have their hinge point and they've literally taught their body that don't use your hips to, you know, drive back. Instead, let's use this area that's not designed for hinging whatsoever. It's meant for flexion and extension and some lateral flexion as well and rotation, but not hinging with load, which most of us do. So now what you're ending up doing is you're teaching your body to be like super mobile here because you're constantly asking for it to move. It's very similar to like, I decide to, actually, I'm not going to get into that yet. You're teaching this section right here to move constantly, which makes your lumbar spine learn how to stay stiff and your thoracic spine above this section becomes stiff in order for this to move. So it would be equivalent to be like, I'm going to 
only use my elbow from here to here, here to here. So this motion of flexion to extension is going to be really mobile. But then when I want to go past extension from this point to here, it might look like, like it'd be like a challenge to extend and maybe that's as far as I go. And then that's it. And then, but here I'm just like super loosey goosey, right? It's literally the same thing. Or, you know, say you broke your forearm and now you have a cast on there. And when you take the cast off, it's going to be very difficult to get pronation, supernation, supernation, because you literally had it in a cast where you can't move it, right? Similar process takes time to relearn that mobility and um, flexibility. But, you know, if you do the right rehab, we'll get you there. So now we have this super mobile position, lumbar spine is stiff, thoracic spine is stiff. Let's look at a couple more things I wanted to bring up. Uh, Here's a good one. So even super, super um, flexible people, um, even before I get to that, when I have a new patient, a new client, I take them through something called the functional range assessment, which is a very, very uh, thorough um, assessment for the body for every single joint. One of the things in there is that we look at how the spine moves. So one of the things we do is the cat-cow from... um, Yoga, I don't know why I lost my train of thought there, but, and which is really interesting is that in the FRA, they call this the cat camel, which is not correct, I believe, in the yogi world, but cat cow is the actual movement that we do. Anyway, um, we'll find people's uh, hinge points where um, in this picture, the arrows literally point to that TL junction that we were just talking about. So say you're doing your cat-cow, you'll literally see that primarily all the movement will come through this one little segment in this area, right? I will literally see, you know, someone start in the big rounded position and they're supposed to start at their tailbone, but the movement initiates here and then maybe bounces back then back here. Then this doesn't move at all. And this just starts moving completely. And then maybe the thoracic spine doesn't move at all. And it's just all this all of this over and over and over again. And usually, like, without even um, getting the history of the person in front of me, because I always ask at the very beginning of every assessment, like, name all the injuries you have, anything that's hurting, you know, anything recent, surgeries, car accidents, everything. And a lot of times people don't tell you um, what actually is going on. And when I see that hinge point, I literally will point my fingers to where this picture is pointing to and like laying down. And I'm like, do you ever get tight and back pain here? They're like, yes, all the time. And I'm like, and they're like, how did you know that? And I'm like, well, you literally have a hinge point where every time you try to move your spine, this is where it happens. This is quite common in yogis because when they do any kind of like toe touches or if they're standing and try to go down to the floor, they don't shift their hips back into a hinge. They use their lumbar spine to fall into the stretch and they tend to come back up utilizing this one section. Is it a bad thing? This is where you can start making the argument where 
if you're a seasoned yogi that you've been doing it for like 10 years, maybe a hinge point is not too bad because it's required for your sport, your daily movement practice. But say you are, again, Sally Sue, mom of three, that's an accountant that sits all day. Maybe yoga might not be the best choice because you're going to, one, develop a hinge point. You probably have low back pain. Your lumbar spine is already probably stiff, and now you're going to add this extra stress, right? Now let's go the other way. Say you're that seasoned veteran um, yogi, and you want to start strength training. You really want to be able to deadlift heavy. And I've had this topic on my show before with Dr. Sue McGill, which, by the way, is like literally my favorite episode I've ever had. Um, that yogi going into a gym where her or his body has completely adapted to the movement um, requirements for that practice gets thrown into the opposite of that where it literally needs stability and movement through hips and not spine, this yogi, this person is definitely going to get back pain and fuck up their shit a lot more than what's, whatever else is going on. So it kind of is a double-edged sword when it comes to hinge points, depending on what you do. Now, another thing I want to show, not this one, not this one... So here's another one. So less flexible person, but again, TL junction where probably lumbar spine is super stiff, but this person moves here very, very, very well. And then it's super stiff here, right? It's a common thing that I see over and over and over again. But the other thing I wanted to show is this image here. So speaking of hinges, one, I would want to teach someone how to utilize their hips to um, deadlift properly. But if someone is super stiff, like this guy, um, this is what's going to happen. So a typical like drill of learning how to hinge with your hips is taking a dowel. This guy is like a two by four for some reason, but having the dowel and imagine if the guy was upright standing, the dowel in contact with the tailbone, middle of the shoulders, and the back of the head. And then you ask the person to keep all three points of contact and push their hips back into a hinge and then back up. So you literally try to get them to do this to here and then back up. If someone has a hinge point, and I know this guy is probably like struggling to get this because a lot of times when you find pictures like this from other people's blogs or whatever it is, they're trying to like, showcase their point and usually trainers or therapists or whatever they are writing the article move pretty well and it's actually really challenging to do exercises wrong it's like it's so awkward and it hurts like when i've done videos for other companies for fitness and health and we want to do like bad ways of exercising and good ways of exercising and say you do the squat and you literally tell the person like, okay, I need you to squat with terrible form. One, it's like, Oh, I don't even know how to do that. And when I do try, like my knees hurt and my low back hurt. Right. So now imagine like everyday people who just assume like that's how it feels because that's exercising. Anyway, if we have that hinge point and you're used to always using your TL junction and not your hips, your hinge is literally going to look like this. 
So that yogi is most likely going to look like this, trying to deadlift substantial amounts of weight, and that's not going to look pretty or feel great, right? So I want to show a couple more examples of some hinge points while exercising. So let's say someone's a little bit more, uh, this image is very small, a little bit more um, athletic. And this usually happens to CrossFitters, Olympic weightlifters, and some powerlifters. You can see that this dude is well-developed, right? Pretty strong back. But if you can see, like I'm like even trying to get close to see it, the arrows pointing at that hinge point, which is like right here. You can already see how the spine is like arching this way, right? Because one, it could just be a cueing thing. It could just be the whole like, you know, when people say like, oh, you know, suck your shoulders back and down and automatically you like start doing this. And I can already feel that like TL junction being like, like this right now. And people just fall into that habit. And also when you think of like CrossFit in general or just um, Olympic weightlifting, say you're snatching and you're trying to do this and you start arching your back to get into a better position, those things add up. So now imagine every time you go to the gym, you think you're doing, you know, the correct way of an exercise to like pin your shoulders back and arch up, chest up, but you're just creating a hinge point Um in extension compared to like that first photo that we saw where it was a hinge point inflection picking things up. And like this can happen the opposite where these erectors end up being overdeveloped and same problem happens. I have another photo like that. If I can find it here. Hopefully this picture. Yeah, it's bigger. So this is just an extension pattern. Um, similar to from like the SFMA, um, where you ask the person to bring their arms up and then push their hips forward as far as possible. So you, again, see if someone can actually utilize their hips or if they're hinging through their TL junction. So this woman is, and you can see, like, look how well-developed these or, like, overly developed these erectors are. And you can literally see a crease of where that hinge point is at so this person who does anything overhead is probably going to feel it in here over and over and over again causing pain flare-ups whatever it is and then there's another photo that i had hopefully where is it where is it oh maybe i didn't save it but we'll roll back to this one there's also a lateral hinge a little bit more um, rare, but it does happen. So say this person ended up, you know, does the extension pattern, comes back to neutral, and then does lateral flexion. You should see, like, a nice, like, curvature of the whole spine going across, but sometimes people will have a lateral hinge at certain segments, and that's a little bit more complicated and, like, way beyond my scope of, like, how to fix that because that's, Cairo, physio, RMT type of world, but these hinge points, when overly developed, you end up, you know, sticking to that um, pattern over and over and over again. And kind of the first steps that you need to do is teaching your body how to move all the different segments other than this one 
section in here. So we're going to take a trip to my YouTube channel and look at some exercises. So I'm going to look at some cat cows. So couple things here. Let's actually look at this guy. So I've shown the FRC cacao to many people, but there's oh many episodes on many people. What am I talking about? But what I want to showcase here is different positions. So all those things that I just showed you were in a standing position, more an upright position. So actually I'm going to bring this back. So to make it more specific, you would want to also imitate um, movement patterns of where your hinge happens and reteach the body. So something simple as like going into an upright position, starting in that big round position, thinking of getting at the tailbone. Look how the pelvis rotates. Nice and smooth. And then head down. Shoulder blades, mid-back, low-back, tailbone, right? One way of teaching it over and over and over again. But for most people, this is going to be very, very difficult, even in the version of the quadruped, where you're on your hands and knees and trying to do the same thing. Because if you're so um, used to constantly going through that TL junction, then most likely you're only going to be moving there. And sometimes like what I'll do when I'm coaching is I'll tactile touch along the spine and try to have people follow my finger along. But even then, sometimes that is challenging. So another way of doing it is a kneeling um, cat-cow. So... Yeah, so here in this position, you tend to, actually, you know what, this is not the best one. Yeah, this is not the best one. I want to show something else. So what I'm trying to find for you guys is how to block out um, the the thoracic spine. This is the problem when you have so many freaking videos. Yeah, here we go. The pelvic tilt. So in this video, I'm going to pause it. I have a yoga block that's going to have my chest pinned against it. And then from here, I'm going to think of doing the FRC cat-cow where I'm focusing on moving lumbar spine because now my thoracic spine is blocked. And now you can see I'm going back and forth. And this is usually kind of like the first steps on learning on how to utilize a lumbar spine. And I find that it's a little bit easier teaching this than like, okay, let's focus on thoracic spine first because there's a lot more happening. Whereas with lumbar spine, I've just had more success. I don't know why, but teaching more lumbar flexion and extension interdependently from that hinge point tends to be a little bit easier than teaching someone how to get more thoracic mobility. Now, 
one way of also teaching some lumbar um, thoracic mobility. No. Sometimes I forget what I have this under. Yeah, so this is where I would start with people. Is one starting with rotation. And usually getting people to learn how to rotate. And in this case, I like going into a wide stance with my knees, squeezing the glutes and slowly rotating back and forth while squeezing the block to kind of add that stability component to it and just learning how to rotate. That's kind of step one. Eventually, I would like to teach people how to get into that flexion extension pattern, but a lot of times doing it actively doesn't really um, give you the best result. Um, This is also a good time to uh, mention if you guys haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, you definitely should because I have a lot of stuff on here. So foam, foam roller extensions. I don't know why this is not good quality, but it looks terrible. But anyway, in this position, I have my feet up against the box wall, whatever you need to do, and then go into foam roller extensions. The reason why I like this variation is that being in this position, having my feet up naturally tilts my pelvis in the opposite direction to make sure that I'm not moving through lumbar spine. So similar to that last exercise where we pinned my chest down to the yoga block. Now this is not going to move and I can focus on lumbar uh, motion. Whereas this is the opposite where we're locking out lumbar to actually move through thoracic spine to not utilize. And you can even see, this way I'm going to adjust to go a little bit higher based on my shirt. Like you don't even see my lumbar spine moving. It's all thoracic spine, right? So something like that would help quite a bit. Um, I think I'm going to stop there because I'm going to end up talking forever, but um, let us stop the screen share. Let just come back to me. So hinge points. Very, very, very common. If someone has low back pain where they're tied up in their thoracic spine, which is everyone, um, I would make a huge, huge bet that you have some sort of, um, what's it called, um, hinge point at some level. So it's kind of hard to self-assess. Um, what I typically do if someone online was looking to get an assessment done. I do them online, no problem. Just reach out to me. I've done this a couple times where people reached out. They're like, hey, like I've been practicing my, mobi my mobility, not getting really any better. Can you please do an assessment on me? And literally just over Zoom, like give me an hour, hour and a half, and we can go through a lot. If you have like, you know, your living room and you have a bench, a chair, a dowel, a yoga block, things like that, like we can get really creative. And we don't necessarily have to do an FRA or anything like that. I've done way too many assessment courses where a lot of times, like even today, where 
when I have people come in in person, we kind of like start with something and then I'm like, you know what, I'm going to kind of go off the rails and do this instead. Like, Oh, your knee's doing something interesting. Let's kind of like do these things instead. So it really, really depends. And I think this is another reason why people should get assessments done. If they're going to start exercising, like for the most part, a lot of people, um, are those outliers where they can just go and start doing their thing. But at certain points, you're going to find yourself in a jam where you're not getting better. Something keeps hurting. Something keeps flaring up. And that's why you need a good assessment. But uh, I think I'm going to end it there. Hopefully this was helpful. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Hit the show notes, add me on Facebook, add me on Instagram, um, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and put your name down for the pre-sale list, which is also in the show notes for my new book, which is coming together. Um, literally finished all the videos for the demos. I just have like three or four more tutorial exercises I need to film. So it's, it's coming together. It's coming together. Um, that's it from you guys. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening or watching. Um, until next time. What's up, my podcast listeners? This is your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and I am bringing you a very special episode. Um, Because I've been doing this podcast for so freaking long, I have brought up certain topics over and over again, but, you know, with some new knowledge or different context, and I was going through my old episodes, and, you know, believe it or not, I've spoken about low back pain a lot. And I'm bringing three episodes all together, and it's actually a three-part series that I did, but they were so spaced apart. So I took the time to actually edit all of them, putting them together, and made it into one solid episode, which is going to give you a lot more value and not feeling like, oh, he could have talked a little bit longer on that, you know, flexion and tolerant topic, or kind of go more in depth into those exercises so I'm going to start putting certain episodes together that kind of blend in together and complement each other to give you more content more clarity on what to do and low back pain is one of those big 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 topics and I already have another one that we're going to put three episodes together that are even longer that I've done over the years so this is going to be the kind of the first installment and I'm super excited to have these together for you because a lot of times when people, you know, start my podcast, there's a lot of freaking episodes. We're almost at 500, so it's kind of hard to keep track. So I'm going to start piecing things together, elaborate on them a little bit more. So without further ado, here is the three-part series on low back pain. What I want to talk about today is back pain and specifically low back pain. And I think I've brought up this topic before, but in a uh, more of a deadlift uh, setting. And, you know, the stats of low back pain are staggering. It's ridiculous. Like, you know, one out of two people probably now have experienced some sort of low back pain where it was pretty severe to the point where they maybe have missed work. Or, you know, um, could barely function and they kind of just waited it out and now they kind of have that reoccurring symptom here and there. 
So the first thing to kind of understand about low back pain is that there's no like specific one. There's no such thing as specific low back pain. Like it's going to vary person to person. And there's a lot of things that you can do and there's a lot of stuff that you shouldn't do. So the first thing, since I've been working in a chiropractic clinic, and now it's more of a multidisciplinary clinic where we have massage, physio, and osteopathic practitioners, but um, the first thing you want to rule out is whether or not the low back pain is flexion-based or extension-based. So to kind of give clarification on what that is, and honestly, a really, really good resource is um, one of Dr. Stuart McGill's book. Uh, I think it's called The Low Back Mechanic, and it was written for, um, you know, tr- like newer trainers, but primarily for, um, you know, the general population because the general population are the ones that deal with low back pain. So in there, there's a lot of protocols to figure out what the pain trigger is. Um, Honestly, I could do a whole presentation about this and maybe I'll do that coming up. I think that'd be kind of good to do a whole PowerPoint presentation on that. But um, yeah, he goes through a different um, protocols to figure out what the trigger is. So the two that we look at the clinic is, again, flexion and extension. Um, I've seen, I would say probably 90% of the people that we see are all um, flexion-based low back pain, meaning if they take their spine from a neutral position, like if they are standing, and they bend forward with their spine, rounding their back to like pick something off the floor, they get pain in their low back. So that would be a flexion-intolerant back. Now, for an extension-based uh, low back pain, it would be the opposite. So imagine if you're standing up straight in a neutral position and you're extending backwards um, and then you get pain, right? So for extension-based low back pain, I find that tends to happen with more so the population of um, athletics. So people that Um, say do CrossFit so if you think of CrossFitters a lot of their exercises are extension based so when they deadlift at the top that's extension when they squat to the top that's extension when they do an overhead snatch or a clean they end in extension they're always kind of hyper extended and then their low back feels pain in that position it's just like anything if I poke my head forward over and over and over again my neck is not going to feel that great by the end of the day right like our bodies are meant to move in so many different planes of motion and if you overload one um it tends to not feel good after a while um and another example is people like gymnasts who are very more upright like think of those athletes that are always in extension patterns that's where it'll present extension low back pain So for the sake of the time that we have today together, I'm going to go over more of the flexion-based low back pain. So in the clinic, we obviously do an assessment to figure all this stuff out. But usually when we have people with low back pain, we ask them to flex forward, they can barely reach down and it can be pretty bad. Now, there's a couple things here it can be a mechanical issue where it's literally like soft tissue that 
you know, all the muscles around your spine, your vertebrae are just like super tight and angry that are preventing you from moving and they're sending pain signals, that can be more of like a mechanical issue. A discogenic issue is a whole nother story. You could be so flexion intolerant that you're actually pushing your discs within your vertebrae in between out a little bit that are hitting a nerve and you're getting discogenic pain. This is more of an extreme situation, but it can happen in every day. Like, I've had a discogenic injury myself, and it, it was so stupid. It was never anything cool. I literally just bent over to pick up my laptop bag. All I had in that bag was my laptop and maybe a few pens and a notebook, right? So what are we talking about? Maybe at the most six pounds, five pounds? And my entire back gave out. It was terrible. I could not even stand up straight. I had to crawl to my car and it took me several hours before I could actually walk without holding my breath and bracing. It was that bad. So that's more of an example of a discogenic flexion-based low back injury. So in those cases, I always refer out, like as a trainer, I'm not gonna be able to fix it. Now I could temporarily help the individual, aka my client, but again, it's like that person would be so much better to go see a chiropractor or a physio. Now, you know, in my training in the clinic, I have some other tools that could help. The big one is I can rock tape someone's low back to help with the pain, but they still need to get assessed thoroughly with a practitioner and um, get some treatment done. But if someone has just a, you know, low back flare up due to a flexion-based activity, usually what happens is if you look at our society today, everyone sits all fucking day. I'd say at least 90% of our day consists of, you know, sitting. And then probably 8% of the rest of the day is us sleeping. And then a 2% of the day is us walking in between our sitting. So when you look at that, like our spine constantly goes into flexion in a seated position. And just like anything, that repetitive motion over and over and over and over again is going to cause some stress on the low back extensors or the paraspinals. And over time, your body's going to be like, F this, things are going to get tighter and tighter. And then when you go do something athletic or bend one more time over to grab your sock, your back tells you to fuck right off, right? So what can you do in those situations? The first thing I do when we see a pretty severe low back uh, flexion intolerant um, patient is we start with belly breathing. You know, anytime there's an injury that occurs, your nervous system is like redlining the shit out of your body to prevent movement because it doesn't want you to do anything worse. So that's why when you injure yourself, you don't feel like moving. Everything hormonally and inside your body is causing a process to prevent movement, but we all know in a rehab setting that movement is what's gonna help. So the first thing to do is communicate to your nervous system to calm the F down. So by using our diaphragm with big, big, big diaphragmic breaths, 
it starts the process to tell your body to chill the F out. So when you look at anatomy, especially with the cranial nerves that are responsible for certain things in our body, the cranial nerve that's most important in this situation is your vagus nerve. It goes from your brain down into your diaphragm. Every single deep diaphragmic breath you take stimulates that nerve. That nerve is responsible for um, de-stressing your body and uh, producing hormones to keep you calm. So in this heightened situation where you are in pain, it would make sense to send signals into your entire body to calm down. Because usually when you have a low back um, episode, you're kind of just really, really tense and you don't want to move. So that's the first step. And then learning how to hinge with your hips with that breathing strategy. I do this with every single patient in the clinic, teaching them how to move through their hips and not through their low back. The more you can you know, stimulate the movement pattern, the better. So then when you do go pick something off the ground like your child, because let's face it, a lot of the people I train and see are parents. They injure themselves and now they're like, holy shit, how am I supposed to pick up my toddler, pick up my baby without being in pain? So if I can teach them, teach the nervous system how to rewire itself to learn how to hinge and pick something up, it's gonna help them a lot. But it takes time to kind of reprogram all the pain signals. So it's one step at a time. So two things to remember, breathing through your diaphragm, two, learning how to utilize that breath in a spine sparing movement like the hip hinge because you stay in a neutral position the entire time. So I'm gonna stop it right there because I could like talk about this forever, but anytime there's a low back episode, make sure you start with breathing and you get into a habit of learning spine sparing exercises like the hip hinge. So I'm gonna leave it at that. If I can remember correctly, the points that I brought up in my last talk was what to do kind of acutely for, um, we have a low back flare up. So if you haven't listened to that show just yet, that episode, highly recommend it. So now let's get into like kind of, I call this phase two. You know, phase one was we need to calm down the nervous system. We need to figure out if you're flexion intolerant, extension intolerant, whatever it may be. And say you've got some treatment done, you're starting to feel a little bit better. This is where I started getting people in spine sparing exercises. One in particular is learning how to hinge at the hips. So say you're an experienced lifter and you got your low back flared up. Right away, what I wanna see is regrooving the pattern of utilizing the hips, right? A lot of times when we get into um, low back pain, our bodies want to kind of avoid those positions. So literally a lot of times I'll get people in the clinic to like deadlift with a 35 pound dumbbell or kettlebell 
to reinforce that, hey, hamstrings and glutes need to turn on to pick shit up. Because we all know that when we get home after treatment, we're probably going to do something stupid like bend over into flexion if you're flexion intolerant to pick up your sock, your kid, whatever. So if we can re-pattern the groove of using your hips as a hinge, it's going to save you a lot of trouble. Now, the other two spine-sparing exercises I get every single person to do, and even if you've never injured your lower back, I still go over these two for my patients and clients because a lot of times when people don't know how to create core stability, they end up doing you know tweaks in, oh, hey, Misty. <laughs> some tweaks in um, their low back, QL, whatever it may be. So the two exercises, the bird dog and dead bug. So I'm gonna start with the dead bug first and it can be as simple as, you know, in this first episode we were talking about belly breathing, learning how to, to diaphragmically breathe is gonna be the first kind of step towards building core stability and learning how to engage your core without overly bracing. So if you think of the mechanism of you know, doing a diaphragmic breath, the moment I get a patient to breathe in through their diaphragm and learn how to u- utilize that position with um, their torso and their cage or their, your core, whatever you want to call it, um, the thing that I noticed right away is teaching how to pe- teach people how to not rib flare. So the moment you take a big, 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 do you have to breathe so loud, Mr. H? Um, the moment you take a deep breath in through your diaphragm and then exhale, you'll notice that your rib cage actually flattens pretty naturally. And then I cue people that the moment that happens, try to keep that as your new normal. And this goes back to um, Yonda, who is a physiotherapist way beyond his time, came up with this concept of joint centration. So an example of that is, imagine if I told you to go to your gym and pick up a 100-pound dumbbell. You would like be like, oh shit, like 100 pounds, that's going to be super heavy, so I'm going to make sure I brace for it. What happens when you like set up you know, just a 100-pound dumbbell off the dumbbell rack, think about what your body's going to do. Like, you're going to think, okay, I'm going to have, like, a good flat back. I'm going to... Misty, can you not be in my face while I'm doing my podcast? (laughs) She's literally right in my face and panting into my face. And it's starting to heat up the car. Anyway, um, think about what your body would have to do in order to properly brace like your shoulders set back your hips get in line you're squeezing the dumbbell handle hard like all these things line up into alignment and that's the concept of joint centration now imagine if you didn't do that and try to pick up the 100 pound dumbbell something's gonna pull yank and not feel good right so this whole idea of joint centration can also go back to how you're breathing Now imagine every single exercise, if you weren't properly breathing, there's no way for you to centrate your body to give you the best leverage angles to lift the weight or put put it down or push it over your head. So 
that being said, the first step to proper mechanics and alignment of your body comes down from the breath. So the moment I can get someone to learn how to keep their ribs in a neutral position and a downward position where it's setting even your spine in a neutral position to lift weight is a good thing. So then I reinforce into the body that every single time you do an exercise, lift something heavy, you're gonna be in a joint centrated position. Now, say my example in that first episode where we're just learning how to diaphragmically breathe, we now go into a dead bug progression. So a regular dead bug is like, you're lying on your back, legs bent at 90, arms towards the ceiling, and then you take, say, your left leg and right arm, you extend it out straight and back in. How I coach this dead bug is one, in that position, taking that big diaphragmic breath, holding it, then extend opposite arm and opposite leg, and then exhale hard, bring those two limbs together. That is a proper dead bug. The other thing I'd start coaching is that with the leg extended, I want them to kick with their heel, extend with their heel, extend with that hip to really elongate the body, and then that opposite arm reaching far, far, far back as possible, and then creating a fist for maximal tension, and then exhaling hard. Like That's a good dead bug. And what that teaches your body is to how to stabilize in positions that require a lot of core stability. Now, because you're lying on your back, you have no spinal loading compared to like, if you were going to do a barbell back squat that requires some sort of loading into your spine and you need to be able to brace to hold that. So by doing a dead bug, it's a low entry level core stability building exercise that reinforces the body to constantly engage when it's asked for spinal stability. So by doing this dead bug in your warm-ups, in your program, in your daily movement routine that everyone should be doing that no one does, will help speed up the process to feel better. Like I've seen patients in the clinic that are in chronic low back pain and then the exercises I give them that we've already spoken about so far that actually do them on a daily basis, the next time I see them, like the week after, two weeks after, their healing time is so quick compared to a patient that doesn't do shit at home and just goes back to their desk job and then comes back the next week and they're like, honestly, my back hasn't gotten any better, right? That's the other thing too. A lot of times when people go to Cairo and physio and had a bad experience, Sure, there are some shitty practitioners out there, but most of the time, those practitioners give you homework to do, and a lot of times, patients don't do that homework, right? Like, we're fortunate to have a system where um, Dr. Forster, the chiropractor I work, treats you first, and then comes... uh, to me for the active rehab. So at least you're doing the exercise right there and then. Some practitioners don't have that luxury in their practice because the way they set it up before or they work in a clinic where that's frowned upon or whatever it is. So a lot of times, if people actually just did their homework, they would improve so freaking much. And if you look at the research on exercise, like minimal amount of effort gives you benefit. 
like I remember reading um, research articles when I first started in the industry that you know they took a group of people that did literally three exercises 10 reps each and they had health benefits from it like it's crazy so even if you're if you think if you're like a fitness enthusiast that all these rehab exercises you're getting from your chiron physio are bullshit like actually try it like trust the process so going back to the dead bug one of the best ways to do it so now let's break it down now imagine if um, you started doing that exact sequence that I just said about the dead bug and your low back is still hurting there's a couple things you can do here one if you look at the laws of biomechanics and exercise if you shorten your lever it makes an exercise easier so an example of that and it's usually the legs because again think about the musculature around your legs compared to your arms is far greater so if we shorten up the lever of your legs it might make the exercise not cause and trigger a pain response so imagine rather than extending the leg straight out you keep it bent at 90 degrees and then you slowly tap the heel down and back up that changes a lot of things for people you're probably cutting at least I don't know, 40% of the weight that's required for your core to turn on and stabilize. If that doesn't even work, something as simple as um, closing off where your hip angle is. So a lot of times, if you look at your spine, if you lay down on your back, where your lumbar spine, there's a little curve and there's always a little space in between um, your low back and the floor. So maybe all you have to do is actually just tilt your pelvis into the floor and not like jam it in there, but just actively tilt it and hold it there and then try extending your leg in and out. That changes hip angle. Now, why would that make a difference? If you think for the general population, we sit all the fucking time, all the time. So how can we change exercise to help prevent any kind of you know issue that relies on sitting too much so if you think about most of us who sit in a uh, hip flexed position those hip flexors at the front of your hip are going to be super jammed up and like just like rocks right so imagine when you're extending your leg in a dead bug and you get into extension and if you're stuffing your stuff in the front of your hip is tight You'll get to your end range, and what's going to happen for you to strain out your leg and have your heel tap the ground? Your lumbar spine is have to has to, you know, tilt in that arch position to get you to tap your heel to the ground. No wonder your low back's going to be pissed off. So sometimes what I do is I cue keeping your low back kind of pushed into the ground and then when you extend rather than having your heel tap the ground you just like kick towards the um kind of like air or the wall rather than tapping it down so now you close your you know angle where your hip is required to you know cheat by using the lumbar spine so that being said 
dead bugs. So freaking important to create spinal stability. Now, the next thing that I want to talk about is progressing the dead bug as well. There are so many variations of the dead bug to continually um, challenge the individual client and yourself. And like, it's endless, right? So if you go on my Facebook or my YouTube page, there's so many different variations of the dead bug that I've filmed that you can use. So even if you're not dealing with a low back injury, but you want to challenge your core stability with a low bearer of entry of, you know, spinal loading, like that's where you should be. That should be your bread and butter. So if you even look at my own programming for my clients and for myself, there's so many dead bugs and bird dogs. And even if you're the fittest person I've ever met, I can find a variation that will fuck you up for sure. Right, Misty? She's literally in my face. Hang on. So moving on, what I want to talk about is the bird dog, but honestly I feel like so that's going to end it because I'm almost at my destination, the dog park, and I think I will bring up kind of like a part three for next time because I can talk forever about bird dogs and its variations. So thank you for listening to me ramble. You guys are amazing. I want to get back into our series of low back pain and what to do about it because it's a long grueling process, especially when you don't have the right tools. So to kind of recap, we first talked about are you either flexion intolerant or extension intolerant, and then we moved into breathing, and then into specific exercises, and I believe we ended off with the dead bug, and if I am not mistaken, maybe the bird dog? If we haven't hit the bird dog, we're going to hit it right now. And this goes into the McGill Big Three. So the McGill Big Three, if you don't know who Stuart McGill is, he is the top and leading researcher, in my opinion, when it comes to um, low back rehab. He's probably put in 30 to 40 years of research and dedicated his career to low back pain so definitely look him up um the mcgill big three is a half a side plank a bird dog and something called the mcgill curl up which is kind of like a um crunch but not really because you barely get off the floor and all these three exercises are 
researched and proven to help people with low back pain. Like, if you had to do these daily, well, I would want you to do them daily, you would see a huge um, improvement in pain and life quality. So I'm going to tackle the bird dog first. So the bird dog is probably um, one of the most, most um, butchered exercises out there. The bird dog is probably prescribed by every physio and chiro and rehab professional out there, but a lot of people do it incorrectly. So if you look at the bird dog exercise where you have the opposite hand and opposite leg extending, most people when they kick that back leg back, their heel goes past their bum. For the most part, people's hips are pretty freaking tight these days. So my guess is that when they extend their heel back like that and goes past their bum, they're actually not using their glute to engage hip extension. They're using their lumbar uh, muscles to extend their hip. And when I see this in my assessments, when people do the perform the bird dog for me, now I know every time your body's required hip extension, you're going through lumbar extension and it's a habit. And then you wonder why people deadlift or do single leg deadlifts or any kind of hip extension movement, they get low back pain after the exercise. It's just, it's ingrained in their head and brain and nervous system that, oh, you need to extend through your hips. We're actually going to use our low back instead. So when I coach it, I almost want their back toe to almost drag the ground and hover like maybe an inch. And then with that heel drive, they can really think and engage that glute to drive back to get proper hip extension. Now that we have that covered, that opposite arm reaching out, I want that to work too. I want that bicep to be right beside the ear as it extends. And I want you to create a fist as you're driving through, like you're trying to punch someone or you're Superman flying through the air. You're just driving that fist as hard as possible. On the way back, simultaneously with that leg and fist that are at full extension, you're driving through, you come back and relax. If you look at McGill's work, he talks a lot about learning how to stiffen up the torso, how to brace, how to engage the body. Because when you lift anything, most people just think, oh, you know, this box or my kid or my dog is only 20 pounds. I'm just going to go lift it. If you properly brace yourself to engage and kind of create that abdominal stiffness that Miguel always talks about, and you lift up that 20 pound object, you are now making yourself more resilient and ingraining a habit that anytime when it comes to picking shit up, you're going to be fully braced for it. And that's going to translate to what you do in the gym. If you look at any long lasting power lifter, they understand this. When they go up to a bar to deadlift, if it's 135 pounds, they're going to treat it as their one rep max at 800 to whatever, right? No matter what the weight is, they're approaching it mentally and physically like it's their one rep max. 
So if we started implementing that into certain exercises where you're trying to get that mind and muscle connection of learning how to create stiffness and rigidity and then also learn how to relax, things are going to be a lot better for you every single day of your life when picking up shit. So the bird dog is not some flimsy back and forth yoga Pilates movement. It's an actual hard, hard, in quotation, air quotes here, um, core exercise. It's allowing the body to actively do a cross pattern movement while stabilizing not only the hips, but also the lumbar spine and your core. So now that we have this bird dog in place where we know how to create intra-abdominal pressure, create that tension and stiffness. And if I went by my client doing a bird dog and they extended straight out and I told them, hold it there for five seconds, I should not be able to push them over. Like that's the kind of brace you want. And that helps relieve pressure on that lumbar spine and teaches your body and nervous system how to create spinal stability. So then when you do something dynamic, like pick up your kid, you don't fuck your back up. That's like a scientific term. Don't fuck your back up. So there you have it. The bird dog. One of the most butchered exercises I've ever seen. And actually, you know what? I forgot one more thing. The supporting hand on the ground as you're doing that opposite hand and leg reach, I want you to think of corkscrewing that hand into the ground like you're trying to freaking break the floor. What this does is engages your lats. And if you look at the anatomy of your lats, like, yeah, like where most bodybuilders, um, you know, flex to expose their lats, it also goes down right into that lumbar spine. So it almost makes sense to engage that muscle group to help stabilize and strengthen that area if you're dealing with low back pain. Now, moving on to the next McGill exercise is the half side plank. And you know, like, if depending on where you're at when it comes to pain, you know, maybe a full side plank is better, but for the most part, being more conservative and doing really, really well on the foundations, like I always say, is gonna save you a lot of trouble down the road. So now, if you imagine a half side plank, rather than having your legs extended, you're gonna have your legs bent and have two pressure points of where your knees are and where your elbow is. Now, this teaches the body how to fight anti-lateral flexion. And if you think about it, most of us, one, they're not going to hinge at their hips to pick up shit. You're going to do some weird like lateral flexion movements. And our spine doesn't really like that under load. You know, yeah, you can do it. But for low back pain individuals, you're just feeding into the fire of making shit work terribly, (laughs) right? Getting comfortable in that half side plank position where you're taking, you know, 20 to 30 seconds and you're learning how to brace and you're creating that tension and like small coaching cues go a long way. When I get someone into that half side plank position, I'm telling them to squeeze their ass as hard as possible. I'm telling them to drive their elbow into the ground like they're trying to pierce a hole into the gym floor. And then with their hand, it's not loosey-goosey, it's another fist. They're creating tension, they're holding, their chest is up, their head is neutral, and they're breathing. 
and then switch to the other side. Now that half side plank that most people have their ass hanging backwards, their head tilted over, and their shoulder dropping forward, and they're just like, when is this gonna be over because I'm bored and I wanna get into my workout? It's gonna make a huge difference. This is where coaching comes into play. Like, I always make this analogy. Like, I can, you know, do my own plumbing at home. Like, I can go on YouTube and figure that shit out. But one, it's going to take me a lot longer to get to the outcome that I want. And two, most likely, you know, maybe a month, two months down the road, maybe even a year, a pipe is going to burst. You know, a good example of this actually was... And I think I brought this up before on my podcast a couple of years back. Uh, my dishwasher broke. And me being me, being cheap, I was like, you know what? I could probably fucking fix it. Six hours later and almost flooding my apartment, um, I got it to work. But now my dishwasher goes through a whole series of like every year always stop working. And then I have to take it apart. Like now a little bit more efficient because I understand this thing like inside and out. But... I could have saved all this trouble by hiring a freaking plumber to come in, maybe spending an hour to fix the whole thing, and boom, done, right? This is the same thing when it comes to coaching. Like, yeah, you can download the best program in the world and follow it to a T, but there's always little things that's going to take you that extra step. So after you're done the side plank, and sometimes... The side plank will fuck your low back too. And most recently, you know, I sort of trained this new individual and even the half side plank is not too happy on their low back. So I started thinking like, what can you do to mimic it, mimic it, the position? And one of the things I stole from uh, Mike Boyle is this idea of a farmer carry single arm. So if you think of a heavy loaded carry only on one side, you're fighting anti-lateral flexion, AKA this side plank. And I thought it was brilliant. So you could easily just do an isometric hold of a heavy dumbbell or a kettlebell in a standing straight posture and not let that dumbbell or kettlebell pull you over where the weight's at. And 30 seconds each side, nice and easy. Now the last one, the McGill curl up. Imagine you're lying on your back and you have both hands underneath your low back to ensure that you have a neutral spine and you're not overly arching. You have one leg bent, say it's your left side or right side, doesn't matter. And you're thinking of driving your chest up towards the ceiling so only your shoulders and head slightly lift off the ground maybe 20 degrees. So it's almost like an isometric hold and not a crunch. There's no flexion in the spine. You're literally just lifting your shoulders off the ground, chest towards the ceiling, head stays neutral and follows, and you hold it 10 to 15 seconds rest, 10 to 15 seconds rest, 10 to 15 seconds rest. What this teaches is creating that stiffness that you need to properly brace. So if you are familiar with like hollow rocks or like a hollow body position, or if you just hang on a pull-up bar and drive your feet forward to mimic that hollow body, you feel that isometric contraction right away in your abdomen, uh, abdomen area. So with this one, it's like 
a very foundational movement to reteach the core how to stiffen and brace. Now, if you have low back issues, you've been diagnosed by a chiro or physio that you are flexion intolerant, extension intolerant, discogenic, whatever it may be, and they say that these three exercises would be a good idea, then yes, you should be doing these daily. That's the big thing. A lot of times you'll go on the internet and find a lot of good information for exercise based on your condition. Like I post a lot of rehab stuff because a lot of people are broken. But then I get questions like, hey, you know, when I do this exercise, this, you know, thing in the inside of my leg starts hurting. Like, what do you think it is? It's like, well, fuck, like you need to get checked out and by a good practitioner to figure out what it actually is because maybe you know the side plank and the bird dog's going to do wonders for your back but for some reason the mcgill curl up actually is fucking you over because you also have some cervical spine stuff going on right there's usually more than one culprit when it comes to pain but for the most part generally speaking these three are proven to help tremendously when it comes to um, back pain they're really really simple and they can be done daily like daily if people took the time to actually do these three it would help their quality of life so so much Um, if you guys easily search on YouTube like McGill Big 3 or literally just the bird dog and half side plank and the McGill curl up you'll find those videos really quickly you know this also makes me think that I should probably um, create a post on these to help you guys out have a little more of a visual but that's it for me Thank you guys for listening to my rambles. You guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me know if you have any questions. Feel free to reach out. Hit the show notes. Add me on Facebook. Add me on Instagram. You know, I'm pretty sure I'm the only Rafael Matuszewski out there. Um, thank you guys. You guys are freaking amazing. Until next time. What's up, you guys? This is your host, Rafael Matuszewski inside of my car right now because I need to do a little preview to the special episode. So this is my part two of my low back pain uh, series. And the first one did really, really well. Like I think within 24 hours, I had like close to 400 listens. So uh, this one is gonna be the continuation of it. But uh, these three episodes that I put together, one is from earlier this year and two of them are from last year. which are more so like the 30 to 45 minute range. So this entire episode is going to be close to three hours. So buckle in because this is going to be a a big one. Um, But I'm excited because a lot of these topics that I've brought up, I've only done bits and pieces. So I've been looking back at certain episodes that need to be together to kind of show the whole picture of, in this case, low back pain and what to do. So in this episode, highly recommend you watch it because these three episodes um, get pretty hands-on with exercise demos, um, exercise breakdowns, things like that. So highly recommend you watch this one. If not, listen. I try to be as uh, you know descriptive as possible in these episodes. And without further ado, here is part two to the low back pain series. Hopefully you enjoy it. And today we are going to go through 
a topic, aka your crunches and why it is literally the worst thing you should be doing for your spine and why it usually gives more issues than solutions when it comes to back health, core strength, and visible abs. Um, probably 30 minutes. Um, on the topic of low back pain and crunches. So I'm constantly surprised with the amount of people I meet, coaches I meet that still program um, crunches for their clients and themselves. And a lot of times, you know, when I ask them, do you know who Dr. Stuart McGill is? And they have no clue. They kind of look at me deer in the headlights type of thing. So for those who are listening, everything that I'm going to bring up in this episode can come down to McGill's work. And if you don't know who he is, highly, highly recommend uh, that you go search him out and read his books, listen to his podcasts, episodes, listen to him lecture, listen to anything Stuart McGill, because that's going to give you a lot of insight of what we're going to go through today. And we're also going to do some demos of exercises um, to kind of go along with this. So for all my listeners, highly recommend, again, hit the show notes, click the video link to my YouTube channel to watch this, uh, because I've been doing a lot more video, vlog, podcast things, and it comes in handy, um, compared to my car, um, podcast episodes. But anyway, um, the biggest thing that I always see is, you know, in the clinic setting, I will usually get a patient that comes in and has low back pain. Most people have had low back pain once or twice in their life. And it can either be, you know, just a flare up, super sore, or it can be like crippling pain. And a lot of times, the first thing I'll ask is, what do you do for exercise? They start naming off what they do. And I ask, okay, specific exercises. And most of the time they'll say crunches and I'm like, okay, why are you doing crunches? And they're like, Oh, I want a six pack. I want to work on my core. Okay. So now I know this person doesn't really understand the concept of a core. And that's something that we need to understand. So what does your core do? And essentially, if you look at the way it's designed, it's supposed to resist force in all multiple directions. So if I am sitting here in front of you right now, and I have this force coming here to push me over, all of my core musculature is built to resist that to keep me upright. And what that is, is I'm fighting anti-lateral flexion, right? So if I look at what my um, spine can do, which is flexion, extension, and rotation, and lateral flexion on both sides, um, then I can train it that way. So if I am constantly just doing crunches, and that's all I do for my core work, one, we already have a problem. If, like, let's set aside why crunches are shitty for your spine. But let's just think about it. You ask an average person, what do you do for core work? Usually it's just crunches and variations of crunches because they feel it here. And if you go by that logic, then if I asked you, all I want you to do for upper body is just bench press. That's it, right? Just that one plane of motion. And for the most part, we know, or at least I hope we know that 
when you do so much pressing. You're kind of feeding into the fire of terrible posture because like even right now when I'm sitting, rounded posture and do this eight to 10 hours every single day in front of my desk, especially now that everyone's working at home over Zoom or whatever video recording device you use, conferencing device you use, it just feeds into that fire, right? We're just adding more movement into this pattern of terrible posture. So, you know, you go to physio or chiro, they're always going to say, oh, you want like mid trap activation. You want postural exercise, band pull aparts, no money drills, those things. Like, I think we all know that. But when it comes to like, okay, I'm going to work on my core. I'm going to do this over and over and over and over again. That doesn't really make sense, right? So already one thing we have is that we're overloading a terrible postural um, position. And a lot of times, like, I'll give this example. If I'm sitting, like before, we can probably agree that this is bad posture because one, we're feeding into the fire of what we're doing all day. And two, that, you know, any posture, like, that's a whole nother discussion, but any posture that's prolonged for too long is bad posture. But we can probably all agree that this is bad posture. So what's the difference of me going on my back in the gym and doing this, right? If you think of that side by side, if I had a photo, it's the same thing, the same thing. So without realizing it, you're actually making your posture worse in that sense. So if we know that the average person sits at a desk eight to 10 hours a day and then goes to the gym and does bench press, say they have no idea, they're doing more pressing, they're getting super tight up top and now they're doing more crunches, they're super tight up top. We understand that when our thoracic spine up here does not move adequately, our lumbar spine has to take over for its job. And our lumbar spine is not really designed to be mobile. It's supposed to be a stable joint. And I'm going to get into another point of when you should train flexion in your spine. But that's going to be near the end. We're talking about the average person here. Now, when you look at our spine, it can flex, it can extend, it could laterally rotate on both sides and just rotate in general. In order for our spine to be healthy, it should be able to do all those things. But if we take their average person that's rounded like this all day, you would assume that the vertebral discs in the spine, being under this pressure for so long, you would assume that the discs in between each vertebrae are gonna now push out to one position because they're in this rounded position. So when you look at the most common low back and neck pain, people will have bulging discs and herniated discs because of that posture. Low back and neck tend to be the ones that are in those positions a lot. So if you think of that sitting position, we're rounded, but we get a lot of stress right in here in the cervical spine and our pelvis is tucked under like this, right? And I find that a lot of times when I work with uh, patients in a clinic setting or even in my kin stretch classes, um, the average person has no idea how to move their spine interdependently of each vertebrae 
it kind of just clumps all together. So if you think of like the cacao, for example, it all kind of just comes together. And then when I had to isolate, say, just the lumbar portion of their spine to rotate back and forth, no clue how to use that, right? So we already have now discovered some problems and issues that are going to arise down the line. And now if we know that that posture for a long time tends to cause bulging discs, herniated discs, in both cervical and lumbar, then why would it be a good idea to now feed that fire further by cranking onto your neck, <laughs> hit my hat off, um, in the crunch position constantly because this tends to fatigue a lot faster. So then what happens is people start yanking on their neck and then you wonder why people have low back pain, like further increase their low back pain along with their lumbar pain, uh, low back pain. So now you can already see this pattern that we're not kind of even doing ourselves any favors, right? So if you look at Dr. Stewart McGill's work, he's the one that figured out that your spine has so much forward flexion before a disc goes this way and starts causing pain. Now, you know, that can mean the average person has, I don't know, 20,000 forward flexions before something hurts. Maybe the person beside me has 11,000. Maybe the person on the other side of me has 5,000, whatever it is. But I think we all have had an instance where we reach down to go grab something, AKA our shoe, our laptop bag, and something just buckles in our spine. We have that shooting pain going through our back and now we can't move and now everything hurts. And what happened? We went to number 20,000 of forward flexion. Your body goes, fuck this. Here's a little disc that pushes against your nerve. And now we got pain. Takes a while to come back from that. Believe me, I've been in that position. And that was during the time where I've looked into Dr. Stuart McGill's work. And it makes sense. It makes sense to me. Now, for all those people who are like, okay, I get it no more crunches, so stupid, whatever it is, but what do I do then? So now we gotta go into this whole idea of um, what our core musculature is built to do, um, what it is, and what exercises can, you know, get that um, job done. So one, when I look at the core, and I'm pretty sure I've done multiple episodes on this, but, and in my book, um, I look at the cores, the top of my shoulders, down to my kneecaps. All that musculature is built for keeping our spine safe and strong while producing movement. So if I can create tension through my shoulders to my knee, to produce movement and power and whatever else I'm gonna do, then my back is gonna be happy. So how does that look like, right? Um, before I go in any further though, what I mean by that is that if I can produce enough core stability, not only here, it should have a global effect across the body, then my entire body will be strong, safe, and whatever other 
word you want to use to describe stability. And again, I really, really like this analogy that stability is like safety. So if I can create more stability in my body, I'm going to be safe. So on an example, like if I had to um, argue that the deadlift, it's a leg exercise, right? Everyone thinks, yeah, it's a leg exercise, hamstrings, glutes, whatever it is. I would look at it as core exercise. I'm putting my spine through so much force, so much weight that I have to resist. It would make sense that all of this stuff between my shoulders and knees have to create enough stability and safety in order to lift that barbell off the ground and ensure that my spine doesn't fucking explode. I would categorize that as a core exercise, right? Um, that being said, what are some traditional um, core exercises that are better than crunches? Um, and I, another thing I wanted to point out is like if you actually look at like EMG studies where they you know put electrodes on your body to see how much muscle activity you get between um, what's it called um, between different exercises. They did a study where they, you know, include crunches and some other core exercises and crunches from a muscle um, activity standpoint is pretty low, right? Compared to like, say a front plank or a side plank, that's pretty high up there that uses a lot. Crunches is way at the bottom. So when it comes from like a fat loss perspective, people will spend endless amounts of time, like 15 to 20 minutes at the end of their workout doing endless crunches because they want to have a visible six pack. Now, if you know that the amount of energy it takes to create a crunch-like movement is pretty low, then from a fat loss perspective or a muscle building perspective, it's pretty much useless. Whereas if you know that something like a Turkish getup, core exercise requires a lot of energy to produce meaning you would spend more time burning calories, burning fat to reveal those abs that you want, right? Like, do you really think that if you spent every single day doing crunches for 20 minutes, that only that one area of your body is going to lose fat? Probably not. You don't see that. Like, you know, when people ask me about... um fitness products like those ab things it's like okay imagine if those things worked and people put on that foam pad thing that vibrates um your fat away i don't know how that works um that means that this one area is just going to be shredded and the rest of your body is still gonna be like jello no definition whatsoever like that it's not a good, I don't think we've ever seen a human being like that. You know what I mean? So that being said, you might as well utilize exercises on a higher scale that require a lot of energy to produce, which will then put you more into a calorie deficit, which then allows you to recover more because you're utilizing more muscles that are involved in those exercises. And voila, down the road a year from now, your abs are now more defined, right? But people just don't think about this process. And I always say to people that exercise, like fitness in general, is very, very, very simple. It's so simple that people overthink it. 
and believe that this next product that came out for Boxing Day or Black Friday is the secret to their issues. But if you really think about it, like fitness has been around for a long time. Like training has been around for a long time. People have been getting strong for centuries. A new product that some person invented today is not going to revolutionize the science behind people adapting to stress. Like, maybe it'll speed it up a little bit, but there hasn't been anything that's been researched or proven to speed it up that fast that everyone needs to start doing it, right? You see new products being produced every freaking year, and really it just comes down to, here's a new stress thing that you can adapt to. But if you look at like Olympic weightlifters, they have three lifts they do all year. And by the time they make it to the Olympics, they've been weightlifting for like 15 years with the same three lifts. And for some reason, they're big, strong, they're lean, they have a six pack and they can lift heavy amounts of weight. Sure, there's some like drugs involved, but um, still, you are still getting strong um, based on just three things. But anyway, other options. So if I were to choose those things where I need to fight flexion, extension, rotation, and lateral flexion, um, things that come to mind, and I will kind of progress how I do it, kind of similar to my last video about the deadlift. Um, and this is going to showcase how, you know, how I was saying that, you know, I work at, here's like the, my four month progression. The reason why people can progress that way is that there's other stuff that I'm supporting it with in order that they can see that progression line go up. So just like my other video where I'm like, okay, we're going to learn how to deadlift. We're going to learn how to breathe. So the first thing I do for a functional core to prevent low back pain is utilizing diaphragm. So there's a few different ways that I do this. So traditionally, if I am lying down, one hand on my belly, one hand on my chest, breathing. From there, I can have feet elevated against the wall, bench, box, whatever it is. I'll even get people lying on their side to see if they can fill up one side. If you see an asymmetry from left to right, then you already know there's an energy leak. And I've seen this with patients too with low back pain is that they'll be able to expand their diaphragm from one side and the other it's like zero activity. And I'm like, well, no wonder that when you go into a gym setting or a class or whatever it is and you're required to create stability, aka safety around your spine and one side of your diaphragm can't expand to create that, well, no wonder you're getting injured, right? Like, it's common sense. But um, that's something that you can train. So depending on the assessment that I do on the client, kind of like the um, uh, deadlift uh, assessment, I also do a breathing assessment. One, just like how I showcased, is just the breathing pattern of the diaphragm compared to the chest, side lying on one side, side lying on the other side. And then the last one is if I was lying down on my belly, hopefully you guys can see me here, and then forehead is on my you know, hands, forearms, whatever it is, and I'm trying to breathe my belly into the ground, and if I can see an elevation, hopefully you guys can see it. It's 11, 10, 5, 4, go. 
and if I can see that people can breathe back up in here into their erectors, now I know that they can create that three uh, 60 degree stability around their spine when it comes um, to any kind of exercise. A lot of times people don't have that ability and I'm like, okay, we have a lot to work with right now. We need to figure your shit out. So that's kind of my first phase of teaching someone how to breathe. Um, and then from there is, you know, things like um, some low level planks and dead bugs. So depending on how many times I see somebody in person, or online, whatever it is, is how I'm gonna structure their kind of core section of their program. So from that breathing position, I will get um, people doing a dead bug, but a progressional dead bug. So a lot of times it's, you know, all right, we learned how to breathe. And now it's like, let's breathe with the legs up. Let's hold the breath, do one leg, back up, exhale, deep breath in, other leg comes down, exhale, back up, and then eventually adding the arms and legs. Now, just kind of like, this is how I look at core training is similar to what I said earlier about if I'm only training this, I'm leaving, leaving a lot on the table and building an asymmetry already. So just like functional core training that don't involve, um, flexion-based activities, I gotta make sure that I'm not only doing a dead bug or breathing on my back, I gotta do other stuff. So just like training, if I'm gonna do a push, I wanna do a pull. If I'm gonna do a hip dominant exercise, I wanna do a knee dominant exercise. If I'm gonna do an overhead press, I wanna do an overhead pull, right? I gotta even it out. So something as uh, simple as a uh, bird dog, right? Opposite arm, opposite leg. The biggest thing that I see when people do this bird dog is that they don't know how to create that core stability. So they end up utilizing their lower back every single rep. Whereas really what I wanna see is your hip going into extension, engaging this glute as hard as possible while the opposite arm creates tension. And even when I'm holding this position, this, say my right hand that's on the ground, I am literally corkscrewing the ground. Like I'm twisting the ground to engage my lat as hard as possible. And then with the supporting foot that's on the ground, my toe is crushing into the ground. And then my hand that's reaching out, I'm creating a fist. And when I get to that full extension, I'm squeezing as hard as possible. And that heel behind me is driving to that back wall as hard as possible. And that's teaching my body, especially my spine, how to create that stability, how to create that safety, um, and create a more functional core. This is just like the foundation, just like how I did my deadlift video. This is kind of like my phase one, right? That was a dynamic way of creating tension and um, kind of that, you know, contract, relax, contract, relax in a dynamic way. And I find that a lot of times when people do this correctly, they will finally see progression. Because a lot of times, kind of like the deadlift video where you know I get someone in, their deadlift hit a plateau, and I check all the foundations, they don't have any, that's why they hit the plateau. A lot of times when it comes to weightlifting and they can't you know, get a little bit more, they see this huge plateau in their training, it's because they don't have the foundations for a good core. And sometimes it's like, I check their breathing, they have no idea how to use their diaphragm, and it's like, well, now you have this huge energy leak, right? So, um, 
breathing, dead bug, bird dog, all their variations, awesome. Going into planks, one thing that I really, really, really love is training anti-lateral flexion. I find that is the highest payoff when it comes to preventing low back pain. I don't know why that is, honestly. Someone out there who's smarter than me can probably tell me, but for some reason, when I can get someone super strong fighting anti-lateral flexion, they tend to get better, they become more resilient and just powerful. So an a example of an exercise that can help with that is literally going into a side plank. And if I was doing phase one, I'm doing half a side plank. So both my legs are bent in half. Phase two would be like the knee up from there, leg extended, and then from there is where I'm going to be in a full side plank. This, I am fighting anti-lateral flexion, getting all my obliques and those deep muscle, uh, not muscles within the spine to help build that strength to make sure that my body doesn't fall into any kind of this stuff. Um, I'm getting close to 30 minutes here and I'm trying to figure out where I wanna go with this. I might do, actually, you know what, I'm gonna do a part two of just core training and why crunches are terrible. So we got to just like my phase one uh, bit. Um, I will add one more thing before I move on to the next thing. Um, Anti-lateral flexion. Um, the other plank that I do, so a lot of times people are like, okay, what about front planks? Awesome, but a lot of times in phase one, people don't have enough stability protect that lumbar spine in this position. So the best way to do it is to cut the lever in half. And I like, I call this a sprawl. I read it in, in a magazine like nine years ago compared to what most people call is like the low bear. But you know, you start in a quadrupedal position and you just lift the knees up and you hold any person with low back pain. This is money. Being able to get someone in a plank position to fight extension, huge. Huge, 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 huge. Front plank, most people don't have the ability to do it properly, so the sprawl plank or the low bear, whatever you wanna call it, works so, so well for any low back person. And even if you have someone that's really, 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 really weak and they have terrible low back pain, the easiest thing for them to do, and this is the only time I let people cheat, is in this position, lift the hips a little bit higher and now put more weight into that upper body. For men, works really, really well. Women sometimes not because they don't have that upper body strength just yet. So sometimes doing that, their upper body will fatigue faster. But again, like your body adapts to stress, do 10 seconds at the very, very beginning. But this is kind of my like low level stuff that I do with everybody. And when you get people doing it right, even my CrossFitters in the clinic, when I get them to do this stuff, they find it difficult, right? It doesn't matter if you're an amateur lifter or you're a brand new person into the clinic that's never exercised. This stuff is hard when you do it right if you know that's the stuff that people need. I will do a part two to this because I just realized in my head it's gonna expand even bigger and the next one for sure is gonna be an hour or even more. Um, but there you go, low level, level one, maybe even level zero, I would put that into a category of what we just did. Now the thing I wanted to bring up Forward flexion is not so bad. I've done videos where I've shown myself in like the hinge and rotating my pelvis to move my lumbar spine to flexion and extension in a rounded position. 
in order for an articul uh, articulation, aka your joint, to be healthy, it needs to move in all the capacities it has. So if my shoulder only does this on a cell phone or this on a laptop and my arm going up to grab a cup out of the cupboard, all that other stuff that my shoulder can do, and I'm performing a shoulder car right now, gets tight, gets stiff, and then it doesn't move and the joint itself becomes sick. It doesn't have the nutrients it needs to be able to move freely like this, right? So just like your spine, if I never put it into flexion, eventually those articulations that allow you to go into flexion is not going to be healthy. It's not going to move the way it should. But, but, if you're an individual with a history of low back pain, probably at that moment, it's not the best idea to go into flexion, but you can retrain yourself to do it to make sure you don't get into pain, which is gonna be in the part two of this video, which is gonna be a long, long video, I just realized. But I'm gonna end it there so you guys can think about this stuff and see where your gaps are in your core training. And, if you and today we're gonna to do the part two of our low back pain exercise selection um, topic that we did last time. And I quickly realized that it needed to be a lot longer. So to kind of recap from the last episode where we talked about uh, low back pain, movement of the spine, exercises that tend to flare it up, exercises that you should avoid, and we started talking about exercises that we need to do in order to keep the spine happy, healthy, and strong. And to kind of um, put things in context, if you didn't listen to my first one, um, when I speak about training, I'm always talking about um, general population people because that's what I primarily work with but there's a lot of um, differences when you're training with an elite athlete um, someone that's super flexible someone who is kind of like an outlier and a lot of times I find that coaches kind of fall into that category whereas in reality they're training everyday people and they're trying to apply principles and methods that only work for those outliers and they're actually making their clients feel a lot worse. And sometimes like, it's just the fundamentals. Like it's literally do the basics over and over and over and over again. And that's where you see true change. A lot of people like, and nutrition's the same thing, but I just find that people always try to do like overcomplicate things when you really don't need to, you know? Um, so that being said, like we're gonna go through, um, a lot of the progressions that I do and you know we're going to go similar to what we did with that deadlift um, video of my progression for someone that was you know either brand new to exercise never touched a barbell to eventually barbell deadlifting <clears throat> and to kind of keep in mind too I will throw in different aspects to training when it comes to um, back pain of what exercise you should do, what you shouldn't do, and little other things I'll sprinkle in. So the whole process of like, like core training, there are so many different exercises out there that all work great. 
and I won't be able to cover all of them in this one video, but I will showcase the ones that are most commonly used in my programming um, and that are that tend to be safe on the back. So I believe last time what I got through is kind of like my phase one where we focus on breathing, we focus on dead bugs, bird dogs, and caries. And those kind of open the door to so many other things. Because I find that when you don't build that base and then you go try something like an ab wheel rollout, you fuck up your back. Right, so you need to have that level of progression and this is where a lot of people forget and it's just similar to like you're brand new to the gym and instead of you know learning how to hinge with your hips you're gonna go barbell deadlift so um, the one thing that we'll go over I don't think I mentioned last time is half kneeling positions and I find that you know, when you get someone in a half kneeling position. So imagine I am kneeling down with my right knee down to the ground, and I'm gonna go on a 45 and I have my left leg in front. Again, kind of going into that phase one progression. If I have my left foot as close as possible to where it's in line with my knee and my back foot, I'm already kind of unstable. And now I need to squeeze my glute and engage all my hip stabilizers in conjunction with all my core musculature. I absolutely love using half kneel everything for proper like core recruitment and proper like hip stabilization and teaching the body how to build stability. And if you remember in my previous episodes, I always mention and refer to um, Stability is safety, like we're creating safety around our entire body. So that being said, if I can constantly recreate that focus of I'm constantly going to feed you the ability to continue to stabilize you, continually build stability. And why not do that in all different types of exercises? So that's why the half kneel is so brilliant. And it kind of covers that area of teaching the low back how to be stable and strong because anytime um, low back pain kind of pops up in my clinic it's usually to do with poor hip mobility and poor hip stabilization and if I can cover those two things then that's going to help this individual who has low back pain or has had flare-ups in the past so that's where kind of the half kneeling position works really well um, I find a lot of traditional core exercises don't have that ability to do that. So that's why the half kneel is my like reoccurring exercise over and over and over and over again. So going back to the half kneel, if I was kind of in my phase one, you know, progression, I'm literally going to line up my left heel with my right knee and my right ankle. And now glute has to engage hip stabilizers in conjunction with my core and now I'm stabilizing and sometimes I'll just do this kind of like a plank where hit the timer 30 seconds per side um, from this half kneel position you can do so many things before I get into non-traditional core exercises going into something like a pile-off press or an anti-rotation press and if you remember from my first video we talked about what 
how is the spine um, built? How is it functioning? How does our body interact with it? What is it designed to do? So our spine can go into flexion, extension, rotation, and lateral flexion on each side, meaning that the muscles surrounding the spine are able to resist those ranges of motion, which then creates stability in our spine. So if you think about an anti-rotation press, so if I'm on my right knee, my left leg's in front and I have a cable machine to my right, or I have a squat rack, um, pillar, bar, whatever you want to call it, have a band wrapped around it, it's coming out and I'm holding in both my hands and I'm pressing out and back in. So the moment I press out, the band or the cable machine is going to be pulling me over into lateral flexion. So all this stuff needs to be here and I'm also fighting rotation. So I have two things happening from a core standpoint that is going to build a more resilient um, stable spine and also a more resilient body overall. And you know, in my um, first version of my ebook, the Ironclad Body Training System, um, I have a lot of half kneel, you know, exercises and I'm super excited for my second version of the book that will most likely drop um, sometime this summer if I can get all my shit together. Um, yeah, so two things we're already doing in that one half kneel position. But the other thing that people don't think about is in that half kneel position, I'm also teaching my hip how to stabilize. And a lot of times, unstable hips tend to have an unstable lumbar spine. So now I'm literally working on three things at the same time. Now, knowing that the half kneel position tends to work three things at the same time and more. Um, I've done multiple po posts why the half kneeling and tall kneeling position is one of the best ways to build a resilient core and how to build um, just overall stability and strength that will carry over to many other things. Um, when I do the half kneel position, um, I always tell people like you're trying to find a spot where you're not completely in line because eventually you're just going to fall over all the time. But um, finding a position where you feel unstable, but you have enough in you to kind of stabilize the mo um, movement and um, stay at that spot. Because sometimes, you know, if your leg's too far out and it's way too easy and you're just kind of using your upper body, you're not really working um, core stability and hip stability. You're just kind of just going through the motions. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you're like going way too in line and you're all over the place. So you have to find that happy medium. Um, the other thing that I tend to use in the half kneeling position is every exercise I can think of. So that being said, if we know that that half kneel position is doing wonders for hip stabilizers, glute function, and core stability, why not do, you know, a landmine press or a cable press or a half kneel row, single arm or double arm, face pulls, um, cable chops, um, cable lifts and chops from like the FMS, um, landmine presses, I don't know if I already said that, um, overhead press if I'm allowed, um, kettlebell halos, like any exercise that you can do standing, you can easily throw that into a half meal stance. So now I'm, I have more opportunities um, 
to kind of to solidify that message to my body that hey you need to turn this 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 and on to make sure everything's stable right and I feel like that's kind of how my training has evolved over the years is finding ways to reinforce the fundamentals without knowing it and a lot of times when you look at the aspect of like fat loss weight loss um, muscle gain we all know that hey if I burn more calories I'm most likely gonna see my um, goals right so how do you burn more calories you're gonna do more movement meaning more movement needs more muscle fibers to be activated so how do you get more muscle um, activation with exercises that require more right so we all know that say a bicep curl compared to a Olympic snatch right that bicep curl has a lot less muscle activation than a, um, a barbell snatch right so when I place people in half kneeling positions and if you do this already in your programming or in your workouts you know that a half kneeling position requires a lot more stabilization because it keeps it kind of get gets you off the of balance so now if we throw in I'm doing a single arm overhead uh, kettlebell press then that requires a lot more uh, muscle activation than if I was just standing or sitting on a bench doing a um, press right so now I'm working on building a good foundation um, creating stability creating a more functional core protecting my low back um, protecting my entire spine learning how to um, fight rotation how to fight lateral flexion and also with more muscle recruitment burn more calories have a better um, just overall training experience because now in a half kneel position the thing that I didn't even talk about is it's really hard to cheat in that position whereas if I was standing and trying to do an overhead press I can easily go into extension and try to fight that um, a lot of weird weird stuff happens when people start compensating and usually happens in the standing position whereas a half kneel it it literally does not happen it's really really difficult to uh, cheat in that position so now I have more longevity in my training and the biggest thing that I see in the clinic is people like like avid gym goers that don't really follow a specific plan to themselves they may be going to <clears throat> a gym following a cookie cutter program um, doing CrossFit maybe doing a program they downloaded offline but a lot of times in the clinic those people will come in because something has flared up because of what they did in their workout which might not be specific to them right so what happens is now they gotta take some time off right usually those people coming into the clinic are so far gone that they physically had to stop training but all the weeks kind of leading up with that little flare-up in their elbow in their low back in their knee whatever it is already started slowing down their volume of training which is now preventing them from seeing success what they want to achieve whether it's fat loss muscle gain endurance whatever it is right and now they're at a point where they've stopped completely and then getting under a treatment plan might be another two weeks of no activity some activity 
and eventually reintroducing them to that environment of their training and still following some restrictions, some modifications, and they're still not at that volume that it used to be. So now that, you know, little piece of tra your training year, that macro cycle of your programming, say it was six weeks in total, where you could have been pain-free and still pushing yourself in a gym like you want to, right? That's another thing is like you'll see those like motivational videos of like the rock working out and you're like oh shit like i need to start training like him like a fucking badass but the stuff you don't see on social media is like his recovery strategies in order to do that right nobody talks about recovery because it's not that exciting but that's kind of the missing link like are you actually doing stuff to recover from the stuff that you're doing in the gym like you know i shit on crossfit all the time but you know, you could do CrossFit as long as you do the recovery strategies in order to continue doing that sport, right? A lot of people don't think of that and they end up just, they're just going and going and going and like things tend to go on your body, right? So the longevity thing is huge, huge. And that's why I pride myself like the way that I program and it's all the stuff that I've been saying in this episode, the previous episode and the one on the deadlift allows my clients to show up more. So now I'll take it from the perspective of a general population person where weight loss is a huge thing. If I can continue to have people showing up every single week, their chances of success is a lot higher. But if something in my program flared something up and they had to take one week off, that turned into two, they come back, they're not really doing the same intensity, now I'm slowing them down from seeing success, right? And that's on me. And I learned that really, really uh, fast in the beginning of my career, whereas now, I don't remember the last time I had a client in person or online where they had to stop training due to something in their program. I had clients where they've literally injured themselves because they dropped something on their foot or they hurt themselves at work and we worked around what they're dealing with with a program that is, that's designed for them, right? So it really comes down to um, your overall goal. And this is how I look at training. It goes into so many aspects, right? We're literally talking about low back pain and why you need to stop doing crunches and here's some other exercises. But those exercises have more layers to them in the sense that now I can showcase that if you do this exercise, it has all these other benefits that go into all these different categories into your overall goal of what you want to achieve this year. And you know, now that we're in 2021, I think we all want to get through the COVID and the holiday weight gain and finally see success. But a lot of us, probably the most of the world have been working from home on their laptops and now they're sitting a lot more or laying in bed and stuff is stiff. Like for me, I felt that I've done a lot more computer work this past year and my hips are tight. Like when I teach my kids stretch, I was like, damn, like this was not like it was before. So that's how I kind of look at exercise. Like, am I choosing exercises that are going to influence other facets of my training and also other categories of success in life, right? Um, that's why I don't think, honestly, crunches is is one of those things that are going to give you um, 
the results you're looking for. Um, man, I went on a big tangent there. Where are we going from here? Um, half kneeling stuff. So her phase one we follow, followed breathing, dead bug, bird dog, uh, side plank, sprawl plank, um, and then we just got into the half kneel stuff. So kind of the next progression from there that I like to take my clients to is just looking at those little exercises and how to progress them, right? And if you look at my entire course training, I follow what our spine is designed to do and the categories of um, dead bug, bird dog, planks, um, carries, and uh, cable stuff for being in half kneel. Um, so if I were to take those five categories and now progress it to the kind of the next level, what I'm looking for is now, let's say the dead bug. And you've seen so many videos that I posted online of so many different dead bug variations. The biggest thing that people need to understand with dead bug is keeping tension, right? So when I coach people core exercises, teaching them tension is another way to define stability and I've made an entire episode about what stability is and if you think of the easiest way to create tension um, is literally like the starfish game um, I can't remember if I taught you guys this but if I was laying down like a starfish hopefully I got enough room here and you know both my arms are on the ground my feet are on the ground and all I do with a client is like, don't let me move you. So in this position, you know, I'll come around and try to lift their arm off the ground. I'll try to lift their leg off the ground. And all they have to do is actively push down and resist. And that's what um, core training is. Uh, core training is, is resisting um, resistance. That was a terrible way to explaining it. But um, to res uh, resist rotation, flexion, extension, lateral flexion and rotation, right? So that's the easiest way to be like, that's how I want you to turn on your core. That's another like topic. I don't even think I brought that up last time is a lot of people think of turning on their core is like, I'm gonna brace and don't let anyone hit me, right? It needs to be more dynamic than that. So for example, in the dead bug, when we're here, it's nice, loose and goosey, but as I'm extending, I'm creating more tension holding it for a second and then coming in to relax. So a lot of times when I teach tension, it's like when you extend that leg, I want you to drive your heel to that opposite wall and then with your opposite hand, create a fist to create as much tension and then relax coming in. Because a lot of those times where you need to learn how to create tension and relax, showcases, um, pops up in other exercises that you need to do. So think of a deadlift. You need to create a lot of tension as you're driving up and then you kind of relax that tension on a way down on a smaller scale. So a lot of times my core training ends up um, again in other exercises. So progress the dead bug in any of the videos I've ever posted and you know if you're new to my channel one like and subscribe but just go into my core section or just search up like dead bug. I have so many variations and they all um, evolve with um, tension. So I think my first dead bug video was like filmed in 2014 and it's just a basic dead bug, but all the different uh, variations have a level of a little bit more tension. 
Same thing with the bird dog. A little bit more dynamic, but you can still progress it. So I like using a band single arm row. I like using a cable single arm row. I will do a dumbbell row off a bench, um, either with the leg in a, what's it called? A, uh, so many thoughts are running through my mind, I can't even speak. Um, a dumbbell row on a bench with the one leg extended the whole time or with the leg moving as the arm goes. Um, you can do the high tension bird dog that I've posted a long time ago. And every time I do in my kid stretch class, it literally just kills people. Um, one, because it's super, super slow. We're working a lot of isometrics in it. And it's literally probably my favorite thing right now for um, core training. And then when it comes to um, carries, um, last time we kind of talked about a double-handed carry, single-arm carry. Um, from there, I would go into a bottoms-up carry. Um, you can go into a racked carry if you know how to clean. Um, I tend to go into a rack carry with a dumbbell first, and I also rotate it this way. And I also push my arm forward. So if I was sideways, a lot of times people have it racked pretty close, but I like to rotate it in. So if I had two dumbbells, for example, one I can squeeze them together. And then also I push them out a little bit. So now I get a little bit more anterior core. So it's kind of like uh, the goblet squat position. Um, it tends to help a lot when it comes to activating that core. Um, other uh, progression, say in that half kneel, say you were doing that anti-rotation press, I might add a little front raise. And again, challenging anterior core just doing that like you don't have to go above your head but i like to here and up um and i start also adding like the trx where you know feet go in we can just do the knee drive or the atomic crunch whatever you want to call it um it's not really a crunch it's kind of like a reverse crunch and that is a whole other topic on itself the reverse crunch which I might leave um, for next time. But um, I also like going into like a tall kneeling rollout with a ball and I wish I had a stability ball. I need to get it in my little gym area. But um, again, if we know that the spine is designed to fight extension, a tall kneeling position, if I had a ball underneath my hands and I had to roll out and let my entire spine along with my hips go in that direction, I'm fighting, again, uh, to keep my extension from happening here and just keeping it neutral. Um, that works really, really, really well. Um, again, uh, a progression from a front plank can either just be a push-up position, like get someone in a push-up position perfectly lined up. They're going to have a tough time fighting that. Um, sometimes it comes down to... Uh, you know, just getting creative. Like there's so many front plank um, variations, but th this is an easy way to remember how to um, see if you're ready for like a front plank variation. So, you, you know, like if I had someone in a front plank position or they're trying to do like reach outs or something, the biggest thing to know is the moment that the hips get unlevel, you're not ready for it. Um, I see a lot of shitty, shitty front planks with the hips super high and they're also rocking and like, you're not getting the benefit of the exercise. If anything, you're 
doing more harm than good on that lumbar spine. So a lot of times it comes down to doing the foundations again. And, you know, when I get people progressing through core stuff, it's very, very, very simple, but it's difficult. And when you kind of keep to that, I got to find a dead bug, I need to find a plank, I need to find a bird dog, I need to find a half kneeling something, and I need to do some sort of a carry. That's all you really, really need. And there's a lot of exercises that are, again, non-traditional and that work your core. So if I got someone in a offset dumbbell racked squat, like I am fighting anti-lateral flexion while squatting, like that's a really good fucking core exercise. <laughs> like, or a, just a regular uh, dumbbell goblet squat. Like having that weight in front of you, you are fighting your body from going into flexion. Like you need all this stuff to be activated to hold that position. Again, non-traditional core exercise. And guaranteed, if you throw yourself some little, like, what's it called, little electrodes uh, test um, muscle acti activity, comparing a goblet squat to a crunch, 100%, that goblet squat is going to get more activation, more muscle activation like we were talking about before when it comes to um, crushing goals in 2021 when it comes to building um, muscle burning fat whatever it is um, where was that going with that another example how people tend to overcomplicate things you know they'll look at the goblet squat like oh you know goblet squats are easy I need to like progress myself and like work harder so I'm gonna do like a um, what's it called a barbell back squat Sure, it's a harder exercise, but do you actually have the prerequisites to actually do that effectively to get the benefit, right? If I took that person who has that mindset, like, oh, I need to do the back squat because it's harder, and they're, like, putting 135 on and, like, can barely do a good set of, like, six reps, for example, I'm, like, guaranteed if I took that person and gave them the 100-pound dumbbell to goblet squat for six reps, it was going to crush them. It just requires a lot more, so... You know, I always tell new coaches, like, exercise selection and how those exercises influence the body are going to be your saving grace for programming and making people successful. And that's what I'm always looking for. Like, you know, if you look at just the kettlebell world, those guys and women are so freaking strong. And all they use are kettlebells. And when you look at the design and nature of those kettlebells, they all require you to have more muscle activation. And I think that's kind of really the key without, you know, creating your program into like a freaking circus act. And you're like on a BOSU ball with fucking balls being thrown at you and you have to catch them and throw it back to your trainer. Like not that kind of stuff. Stuff that you can control and you only need one piece of equipment. Um, I think I'm going to end it there to kind of give you guys some space to think about all the stuff I said. Um, for those at home, like really think about how you're implementing your core stuff. Do not go into the whole rabbit hole of I'm going to start doing crunches for like 10 minutes at the end of my workout. These core exercises are great to implement either at like the beginning of your training, kind of like a activation phase. Um, 
I stole that from the Cosgrove's. I thought it was brilliant. Or as a recovery exercise, like sometimes the way I implement it is, you know, I have my client doing a push exercise, a pull, a leg exercise, and that fourth exercise is going to be a little core exercise for them to kind of recover. Because most times I'm choosing core exercises that don't require a lot of energy to produce. So if I have someone that's newish and their third exercise, like they have a half kneel, single arm cable press, uh, TRX row, goblet squat, and now I have them doing a front plank, like that's not that much that taxing on them, but still I'm achieving what I wanna create in the program, which is overall stability and I can't even speak resiliency in their body so they can stay pain-free. Um, that's how I kind of look at um, training programs when it comes to implementing core. Um, I don't ever put together an entire core workout that doesn't, doesn't like, compute in my head. Like, we're working on your core in every single workout, so um, there's no sense of um, creating an entire day dedicated to it kind of like the traditional bodybuilding if you have like an abs day um but i think that's going to be it for today i've gave given a lot of information of how i progress um my core exercises like kind of the train of thought of functional core to keep your low back safe and kind of just elaborated a little bit more on that pr uh, previous episode so hopefully that was helpful um, I am going to leave it at that. If you have any questions, feel um, free to reach out. What we're going to go over today is another kind of low back pain um, topic because I see this a lot in the clinic. I see this a lot in the gym when people perform things that require a lot of hip extension and they always say, oh, I always feel it in my lower back. So an example of that is running, they feel it in their low back deadlifting they feel it in their low back even some like squats they feel in their low back lunges basically anything to do with your lower body tends to require quite a bit of hip extension and if you don't have one the mobility to do hip extension things are going to f up and two if you don't have adequate um active control of hip extension things are not going to work the way they should. So I wanted to cover this whole topic because it's something I always talk about almost on a daily basis when I see a patient in the clinic uh, dealing with low back pain. And it kind of goes down to that whole, you know, concept and idea that um, glute function, your glutes don't fire, glute amnesia or whatever you want to like call it. Um, so we're gonna kind of unravel that whole topic in today's episode. So for those who are listening to this podcast, highly, highly, highly recommend that you watch the video of this because we're gonna be demoing um, quite a bit of stuff on this uh, topic and we're gonna have my wife, Angel, be the body and demo and maybe she'll chime in with her two cents because she's almost a doctor and I know nothing compared to her. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a good episode. So hit the show notes, hit the link on my YouTube to watch this.
Um, if not, I'm going to try to be as descriptive as possible if you're listening to this, you know, in your car or whatever you do while listening to podcasts. Um, and hopefully Misty doesn't get super psyched and excited that we're on the floor and she's going to start wanting to play. And we'll probably move the camera around a little bit too. Um, so I guess we can get started. Hip extension. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. All right. Hop on into the frame, babe. All right, so what we're gonna do, um, I'm gonna get you to lie down this way on your belly. Nice, okay. So for those who don't know, hip extension is when your leg goes back to extend the hip this way. So I'm gonna get Angel to extend her right hip into extension. And good. So that's hip extension. Not really that exciting, that, you know, intricate, but it is so, so, so vital with um, any kind of exercise dealing with um, things like deadlifts, hip thrusts, squats, all those things. And I think I should be on this side so I don't cover you. Um, so number one, there is like a sequence of firing when it comes to uh, hip extension. Number one, it should be the glute that engages. Then number two is your hamstring and then lumbar spine. What we see a lot is that people end up going lumbar spine first, then hamstring, then glute kind of just is there. Or you'll hear people saying, my hamstring cramps when I do glute bridges, I feel it in my low back and nothing in my glutes. So those are like the two scenarios that we always, always see. A lot of times too, when I assess somebody, when we do exactly what Angel just did, a demonstration of hip extension, I'll always ask them, where do you feel it? And they're like, pretty stiff in my low back. So maybe demo it one more time, but like be like completely prone. What hands down with it? No, let's go on top of each other. You want and my feet to be tucked up? Yeah, you can go tuck and extend and then back down. What did you feel? It did feel low back a little bit. So even when I assess hip extension, I'll kind of watch what happens. And like right away, Angel likes to use this portion of her back. So if you go again, you can even like, and go again. Do it now. Yeah. You can already see like this hip will drop down and then this starts firing up. So there's a couple things that we can do. Number one, we have to figure out if it's a mobility issue so we can check passively. We can do other orthopedic tests. What do you test for hip extension? You can do yeoman where you have the, you can bring it up like this, yeah. like passively. Yeah. Um, and then any of the like internal external rotation doing that way as well. What about the one on the table where you have the leg off to the side? Um, you can do Gaines Lens or mm-hmm. Thomas. Can you say those tests out loud for the audience? You have Gaines Lens. Oh, I always get these two mixed up. I believe Gaines Lens is the one where that's off the table, whereas Thomas is fully on the table. Thomas is like this, I believe. And the, and the, um, the examiner is the one that's putting over pressure. Whereas Gaines lens is off the table and you as the patient is the Mm -hmm. one doing the pressure and the other leg is falling off the table. Yeah, so for those who don't know, those are like 
orthopedic tests that most physiotherapists, chiropractors, or future naturopathic doctors will learn to rule out or figure out any kind of musculoskeletal stuff. Um, again, do I use them sometimes? But again, like there's so many different ways to skin a cat and it's all based on how you're trying to figure out what? Why would you use that expression? Why to skin a cat? That's a pretty like common phrase that people say. No? I don't like it. You don't like it? There's lots of ways of figuring this out. Okay, hip extension. <laughs> I use the FRA, I test passively and actively, but I care mostly about active control because that's where it translates more into everyday stuff and more into what happens at the gym. So when I see that this is not working, well, hip extension is not working and this is overpowering, we need to figure out how to, well, number one, activate the glutes. There's so many ways of doing that. And there's ways to kind of um, prevent lumbar extension from happening. So we're gonna go down the rabbit hole of probably um, demonstrating some exercise before I go back into more hip extension stuff. So something that I like to use in um, my kin stretch classes and things like that is number one, priming the kind of nervous system to one, because a lot of times where if something doesn't move the way it should, I kind of automatically think of your nervous system is the gatekeeper to everything. And if I constantly have someone putting an emergency brake on for every single body part that I have, I'm not gonna have a really good chance of activating what I want. So sometimes what we'll do um, at least in my programming, I will incorporate things from the kin stretch um, practice that I have, like pails and rails to directly communicate to the nervous system to be like, hey, I wanna utilize this movement pattern. Here are the muscles involved in the pattern. And I'm going to tell my nervous system that I need more kind of recruitment for those muscles to ensure that I don't hurt my lower back when I deadlift. So what we're gonna do, I didn't even plan that I was gonna do this, this is top of my noggin, mm -hmm. and we're gonna do this in our kin stretch later today. I'm gonna to get you into a half kneel position. And we're gonna kind of, oh, these shorts are really tight. We're gonna go into kind of almost like a runner stretch like this, but move the knee further back. Do you feel a stretch in here? Mm -hmm. So essentially now we're stretching, um, hip extension muscles that are responsible for that. How we're gonna do a pails and rails contraction is we're gonna slowly lift this up. You feel the knees now flat on the ground? Mm, yeah. So you're gonna hold that there. When I tell you to go, you're gonna drive your knee down to the ground and that way. And this way? Yeah, almost like you're trying to like okay. knee someone forward. Yeah. Um, and go. Start pushing, push, 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 push. We're gonna hold this for about 10 seconds and relax. And now kind of sink deeper into it. Cause right away, like even all the people on watching, like the moment she stopped, her whole hip already dropped forward. Cause now we told her nervous system like, hey, let's have more hip extension. And then you did that little isometric contraction and it was like, okay, I'll give you a little bit more. So let's go back to that same position. And now we're gonna do the rails in this. 
there is a chance, babe, <laughs> that your hamstring might cramp. Because what we're gonna do is the opposite. We pushed forward in that way. Now you're gonna think of driving your heel up towards the ceiling. But when you do that, when I tell you to go, think of squeezing your glute, driving the heel up and up. Drive it up, drive it up. Again, 10 seconds, go, 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 and relax. And you can put this down. How did that feel? Fine. Okay, so now let's go back to that prone position because now it's like test and retest. That's what we always do to see if things are working. Go back to that prone position and show me hip extension like we did before. So right away, what I noticed and relax, this was quiet. The glute fired and then the hamstring. Did that feel different? Yeah. Yeah, so like huge difference and like, oh my God, it's like magic. It's like voodoo. Not really. It's just manipulating our nervous system for our advantage. So imagine now if you were doing your warm up and we literally just held those stretches on both sides, did an active component. Now your glutes are like, all right, I'm ready for information. What do I need to do? You're most likely going to have a better time doing things like deadlifts, hip thrusts, squats, whatever it is. The other thing I wanted to show, because that kind of just threw me for a loop, go into a quadruped position. And perfect. So what I always see, move forward a little bit. When you see all the females on Instagram working their glutes, a lot of times they end up using lumbar spine and not actually utilizing hip extension for their glute. So what I want you to do is take your right leg out straight, but the toes on the ground. Like yeah. And you're just going to like do one of those leg lift things that you see on Instagram. Keep going. So Angel's doing a really good job of actually just utilizing hip extension. Now like overly exaggerate what you see on so that's what usually happens. So like the leg doesn't need to go that high and relax. So, but have the leg straight out again. Essentially, I'm gonna take you through extension. So essentially like 20 degrees of hip extension is like that's, that's all it is. But then anything further, it's lumbar extension, right? So now imagine, you can relax, you can even go to child's pose. I don't know what you wanna do. Um, now imagine when you see people in the gym or even yourself going through like I want to gain more size or aesthetically change my glutes so I'm going to end up doing those hip extension uh, exercises and every single time I extend my leg I'm going into lumbar extension you know you may actually have the mobility requirements to actively lift your leg into hip extension but you think that more is better, so I'm gonna create this almost like movement behavior of every time I tell my hip to extend, I'm gonna use my lumbar spine every single time instead. And then every single exercise or form of exercise like running, your leg that's supposed to just go to hip extension is now just doing lumbar extension over and over and over again. So you're actually giving yourself a disservice because now you're not actually activating your glutes as much as you should, right? So little things like that go a long way. Does that kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. You want to throw anything in there? I mean, you got it all covered. Okay. Um, the other thing that I find is when people do exercises like the glute bridge, a lot of times people will 
feel, again, hamstring or low back and never glutes. There's a lot of little things that you can do to change that. So let's get into a supine position, legs bent, like we're about to do a glute bridge. Because we're going to go over how I um, coach the glute bridge. And I'm going to move the camera a little bit just to get a better angle or just a little bit closer. That looks good. So just do like a standard glute bridge. I don't know how normal we just, just, just arms out to the side. She's trained to just do it the way I do it. So that's, let's do a couple more. That's essentially what most people do for a glute bridge and good. How I coach it. So I want to think that if I'm going to utilize an exercise like the deadlift, I want to think of every single muscle that's involved with the deadlift. Because when I look at a warm-up, I want to create a warm-up that is specific to what I'm about to do to get most bang for my buck when it comes to exercise selection. So with the deadlift in mind, a glute bridge is primarily just working hip extension and just glutes. But let's, you know, make it a little bit more specific to the deadlift. So the biggest thing that I see that people kind of leave on the table is not utilizing their lats in a glute bridge and when you look at the lats they have a huge 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 influence on how your hip structure um, comes together in any kind of active component and if you look at how it literally like flows into the glute complex if you've done your cadaver lab <laughs> which she has done just recently um, you'll see that like all the fascial lines of the lats like literally dig into your pelvis where your glutes are so when people say in their like deadlift cueing like engage the lats like you want to like think of bending the bar like all those things so it's like okay well why don't i add that to my glute bridge to ensure that my low back is not turning on every single time i do a glute bridge so what i do is i'll get angel to drive her elbows into the ground and again when it comes to like joint centration we use a fist to squeeze tight, just like if we're squeezing tight on a barbell to think of bending it in half. So now we have more tension being sent through the lats to kind of communicate with the glutes to go into extension. So let's do a couple of those. Yeah, and good. Little simple thing. Now the other thing too is like when I think of glute function, we also have to think of like the outside stuff of our glutes, like your glute med and min and all those deep six uh, muscles that allow you to externally rotate the hip. So when you do that in a deadlift, because a lot of people don't think of like pushing their hips out this way to make sure you go straight, because a lot of times when people don't engage properly in the deadlift, they'll kind of come up and like swivel to one side whoever is stronger so if we think of actively driving our knees out to the side to engage lateral stabilizers it's going to make things so much easier so what i like to do is even with the feet we're going to have them out Ooh, nice ankles <laughs> feet out to externally rotate so <laughs> inside joke um you're going to drive the knees out to the side into abduction to get more of those lateral stabilizers in conjunction with everything that we just did with the elbows and fists. So then come up, 
and she's thinking of pushing out, yeah, and then holding and then coming back down. So now we have a lot of components that relate to the deadlift that we're making sure that the glutes are actually engaged, the lumbar spine's not involved, and then we're gonna throw a third or fourth thing. I'm like totally four or even five because I didn't even think about the feet, um, is the breath. So a lot of times people don't utilize their diaphragm and I've done like three episodes on the diaphragm so go find those. Um, during exercise they don't utilize the diaphragm properly. So even in the glute bridge I want to prime my diaphragm to be ready for say something like a deadlift or a hip thrust or a back squat. So before every single um, glute bridge, what we're gonna do is take a deep belly breath in to engage diaphragm, and then we're gonna go up into and exhale as we do it. Here we go. And then, yeah. I don't, sorry, did I do it right? <laughs> you did, you did. You just held it, the deep breath, and it was all good. But essentially what you wanna do is like, deep belly breath in, you hold it to create a little bit of intra-abdominal pressure, you drive up, exhale, and then back down. Relax. That feel good? Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Yeah, stronger. So like a lot of times, you know, you, you can come up from there if you don't feel good. Um, people exercise or move their body while exercising without any kind of purpose and it ends up kind of just going through the motions and that's where a lot of people lose their, you know, um, opportunity to actually utilize what muscles are supposed to happen. So in this case with like hip extension, how many times have you gone to the gym or seen other people do glute bridges just back and forth and like, are you really getting the benefit or are you just moving for the sake of moving, right? So you want every single exercise you do have a purpose behind it, have a full intention behind it. So then you can get the most like, you know, the biggest dividends from your workout. And that's where I think a lot of people kind of miss the boat. I'm just checking the time. Um, but yeah, like, I think the biggest thing is most people have bad movement behaviors when it comes to um, hip extension, and then they don't, you know, follow a specific protocol in their warm up to, you know, improve um, activation of all their hip extension muscles and small little changes on something like the glute bridge that go a long way will help quite a bit. Um, anything else you want to chat about on hip extension that you can think of? Yeah, I think warm up is great. Most people are just sitting in their chairs all day now, especially now with COVID. So movement is great. It's good advice for me too. Cause <laughs> <laughs> but that's a good point though, too, is like, because we live in an environment that doesn't you know, promote a lot of posterior stuff because we tend to fall into this position a lot. So something as simple as that glute bridge that we all change with all those little things are all the stuff that we need in order to move like a human being that's not being challenged quite a bit. So even from a training standpoint is like anything posteriorly is gonna give us so much more than focusing on just doing bench press and bicep curls and step ups, like we want to use this back stuff as much as possible. Um, I think I'm going to leave it there because we kind of started without any kind of rambling, got right into it, and we're already past 20 minutes. Um, so, oh, Misty's like twitching and sleeping. Um, that's it for this episode. Hopefully, you enjoyed it. Hopefully, you enjoyed our guest. 
future Dr. Angel Santos, which is going to be amazing, um, about hip extension and low back pain. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Hit the show notes, add me on Facebook and Instagram, subscribe to my YouTube channel, give me a five-star review on any platform that you listen to my podcast. And if you haven't done so already, watch this video if you've been listening. Uh, so you have a better visual understanding of what we did here on the floor. And that is it for us. Until next time, you guys, see ya! What is up, my podcast listeners? I'm really, really excited about today's episode because I am compiling, um, I think it's four episodes I put together because the last two that I put together of a compilation of them, um, which I explained in my other videos that, you know, I've had this podcast for ages and, you know, certain topics have been brought up over and over again. And, you know, I want to do a better job of putting all my thoughts into one place because I kind of just ramble all over. So... One of the key things about, you know, cut the shit, get fit is obviously weight loss and fat loss. So I compiled um, some of my most popular uh, episodes in regards to nutrition, supplements, and even my current um, nutrition at the time. And, you know, the first episode is actually like episode, I think think like 134 like it's so crazy and I remember looking this episode up to a point where uh, I had a video of it and it's like I have long hair and I am in my old place and it like flooded with so many memories but it also brought me to this whole idea that you know some of these episodes that I just brought up is like supplements 101, supplements 102, nutrition 101. And it's still the same stuff that I've been talking about for years. And it just goes to show like nutrition doesn't need to be um, complicated or, you know, this elaborate plan that you see in like murder mystery documentary shows where they try to like pin one picture to another and location and it's like this giant board of information that you're trying to make sense of like that's not what nutrition is and I'm happy that I'm going back and looking through my old episodes and seeing which ones should be together and I think this one's going to give a lot of clarity to people it's going to give a lot of um you know, almost like a fre- like a breath of fresh air, because we're all accustomed to bombardment of information online nonstop. So, hearing something simple, like in my nutrition one on one supplements one on one, and even my own nutrition um, that I practice, is going to give a little, you know, shed some light on the heated debate of supplements and um, nutrition out there. But for the most part, everyday Joe and Jane don't need really complicated 
solutions. They just need something simple that's easy. It will take a lot of hard work, but when you get there, like, you're going to hit your goals eventually. Um, So enough me blabbing about because I want to get right into it. But I will say, still working on my book. I just been so hammered down with so many things lately. And, you know, yesterday I took a, this is my day. I took a business course and got tattooed for five hours. Yesterday was a long day and I still had to like, you know, maintain my emails and crap like that. So, you know, sometimes some days where I go, fuck, I have way too much shit to get done. I just need to, you know, maybe push back my book uh, a little bit for editing. But it's honestly, everything is done. I just need to edit that thing and cut, copy, paste, dot the I's and T's or whatever they freaking say about writing books or contracts or whatever that reference is from. And it's going to be done. So I think realistically to have it all done well, polished and good I think I'll be able to release it for January. I know I said this fall, but you know what? January is more realistic for a lot of people to start training again. You know, I'm already looking forward to Christmas. I'm one of those people. Um, And I feel like I could probably get into a whole episode of just like random shit, um, which I'm actually going to do. I'm going to get my wife to interview me. Um not this weekend, but the following weekend of certain questions I get a lot online because I've been kind of compiling them and uh, I'm going to answer all of them. So if you guys have any questions you want answered on the show, let me know. And without further ado, here is a compilation of nutrition supplements and my own nutrition that I follow in one episode. Here we go. Um, So today what I want to go over is nutrition. Um, You know, I always tell people on my show to add me on Facebook or Instagram or what have you, and I always have this open communication because when I first started in the industry and I looked up to certain individuals, I would reach out and ask questions, and it felt so good for, you know, say someone that I looked up to for their work would actually take the time and answer me. And I remember telling myself that, you know, the one day that I have an audience big enough to actually care about what I do, I would make it a top priority that if anyone reached out to me, I would make sure I would respond to them within at least 24 hours because I do care about every single person that listens to the show because, you know, our time is valuable and you're taking, you know, say an hour of your time listening to a guest that I brought on or my little like solo episodes where I ran for 20 minutes and I hope that they actually get good. Um, It's important to me. Like the fact that you would want to do something like that speaks volumes. So I had someone uh, add me on Facebook recently, big fan of the show, loves what I do, and he uh, suggested I do an episode on nutrition, because I haven't really touched on that that much and in depth, and maybe this could be like a series of different nutrition, 
um, episodes and also supplementation, which is a whole other topic. So I think today I'm just going to jump into nutrition, specifically how I coach nutrition um, for my clients in person and online. And it always starts with it depends. Like every question I get, whether it's nutrition or training, it's really dependent on the individual. So my whole process um, when I get a new client when it comes to coaching for nutrition, I actually have, I believe it's 27 pages of an intake form where it's gonna paint me a picture of what's going on in their life based around their eating habits. And it touches on everything from like the mental side, the social side, your environment, like everything. So then I know what I'm working with. But to make things a little bit more simpler, based on what I see on the intake form I give them, and you know our first couple chats together, I get a sense of what is kind of going on in their life. And before I used to just like give them homework and like this is what I want you to do, but recently, probably this last year, I would always ask the question, what is like the one thing you think you can actually do to improve your health and eating that doesn't seem like such a far stretch that, you know, if you did it today, it was going to be a hit or miss all the time. And then they start thinking and it could be as simple as like, you know what, I don't drink enough water, so I think I'm going to aim for one more glass a day. And I'm like, that sounds great. Let's make that our first priority. And I tend to lead people in the direction that they already want to go to. And I'm just kind of like there to push them along. And I think that's kind of the best way to approach it. So anyone listening that's not a coach, well, you know what, screw it. As a coach, you should listen to this. Because um, you never know, you might pick this up and decide to start doing this with your clients. But for all those people who are struggling with weight loss, you know, focus on one thing that you want to put 100% effort in and it can be literally anything. It can be as simple as, you know, adding one more glass of water per day or I want to hit 127 grams of protein per day as per my macros recommendation that I got from X, Y, and Z. Two different goals and focuses. One's really easy, one's pretty difficult depending on where the client is. So think about that as being your first priority. And I always coach habits. So I'm a huge, huge fan of Precision Nutrition and Georgie Fear, how they start off with like foundational habits that everyone should have. Because in our day and age with general population, they're constantly looking for the most difficult, most insane, most secretive form of nutrition to be successful. And the tough thing with that is you're gonna end up failing if you don't have a base, right? I always use this analogy of like, you know, playing hockey. If I told you that starting tomorrow, we're gonna put you on the ice with ice skates that you've never tried on, and you're gonna play against, you know, high level amateurs that are gonna make the pros, you're gonna fail miserably. And that's the same thing with nutrition where you find this, I don't even know, some diet that you found online or in a magazine that has all these restrictive rules 
and you go in there hoping for the best, like it's not gonna happen, it's gonna suck. But for some reason, people think that doing it that way is okay. But then my analogy with the hockey thing, if I told you to do that, to go play a, like an ice hockey game with amateurs trying to be professional, you'd look at me like, fuck off, like <laughs> I'm not doing that. It's the same thing. So let's build up foundational skills first so then when we put you on the ice and put you in a situation where you want to do a difficult diet and succeed at it, you have all those fundamentals that you can just plug and play. So the few things that I always want to get people going with is creating habits just like your everyday you know, activity. So when you wake up in the morning, you brush your teeth automatically, you don't think about it, it just happens. So that's how I want nutrition to be for all my clients, that they don't think about it, it just happens. So typically, I always focus on protein first. The reason being is that when I get people to actually track their calories and macros, they tend to eat primarily all carbohydrates and fats and their protein ratio is like 20% at the most. And especially for women, it's so difficult for them to get protein. Like when I even ask them, like, oh, what did you have for breakfast? They're like, oh, you know, I had some steel cut oats and blueberries. And then for lunch, I had some hummus and some veggies. And I'm like, where's the protein? Like there is some protein in those foods, but it's not enough to sustain you for high quality movement when you go to work out or rebuild or anything. So protein is kind of like the number one thing I follow to kind of start. And there's so much research on protein. Like the two that I always refer to is, you know, protein has the highest thermic effect compared to proteins. I mean, not proteins, compared to fats and carbs. And what that means is that the moment that you start consuming, say like a piece of chicken or steak, the amount of energy it takes for you to digest this, digest it is so much greater than you eating a piece of bread or some peanut butter. So you actually end up burning more calories just by eating protein. And when it comes to fat loss, you wanna be in a calorie deficit as much as possible to see that you know, weight come off. So wouldn't it just make more sense to kind of shift your dietary habits to more protein than just eating a lot of vegetables and hoping for the best? So that's where I kind of start. And, you know, all of us are so freaking busy. And, you know, especially with mothers who have basically a taxi service of a life to drop one kid off to one sport, pick up another and go to the grocery store and do everything under the sun and this also works for you know any kind of CEO out there or, or someone who owns their own company that works 16 hour days and doesn't have like the mental capacities to start thinking about food I always kind of default to like let's just start with the protein shake and all of this sounds really really simple and it's on purpose like I want people to succeed rather than telling you I want you to make sure you have 30 grams of protein in every single meal telling you instead, let's get you know, a tub of protein powder and I want you to focus on one scoop a day. That's it. At least you have that. 
these little simple things will be the building blocks to more advanced stuff. And if you've been following my work for a while, I like layering things from the most simple and then getting to the most advanced. So following that kind of protocol, I will, it's, you have a higher chance of succeeding. I think the worst thing for people is always failing at something like weight loss and it fucking sucks. I've been through it and you know when you fail you don't really have that motivation to try again. You might go on a hiatus for six months and you're like okay well I guess I should diet and do this shit again and that repetitive pattern and cycle is taxing on your mental health. So the most simple little approaches so you feel like you have momentum is probably the best bet in order for you to succeed. So protein shake, like it doesn't have to be super complex like water and protein powder. I have a handful of clients doing that right now and all I want them to focus on is getting that one thing compared to having 30 things of a list of foods that you cannot eat is gonna just fuck with their brain. So that's one thing. When I get people used to always having a high protein um, diet, I want to focus on vegetables. You know, we don't eat enough vegetables at all in our daily living, and we tend to, you know, go to like greens powders and any way to kind of cheat it. So, the joke I always use with nutrition clients is, you know, show me a person who's overweight that eats only protein and uh, vegetables. There are none, right? So that's kind of the next step. I get people looking at their plate and I want half of it to be as many veggies as possible. Um, things like, you know, cut up vegetables and hummus or, you know, homemade tzatziki sauce, it's awesome. Now the other thing I'm gonna backtrack to protein. A lot of people have trouble getting that in, so I like stacking protein. So an example is, you know, you can get Greek yogurt, you can get hemp hearts in there and also scoop a protein powder. So I was telling this to another client the other day that the brand that I use is from Costco and per three-fourths of a cup, 100 calories, 17 grams of protein, you throw in a scoop of protein powder. My, like to the typical like protein powder average is about 30 grams, you're at already 37. And if you get three tablespoons of uh, hemp hearts in there, uh, that's 10 grams with the brand that I use and that's already 47 grams of protein in one freaking meal like you're golden Right, so start looking for foods that you can combine So then your protein intake goes a little bit higher and like another easy one is like a can of tuna The one I have 30 grams of protein and then you can throw in two eggs typical egg has about seven grams of protein and if you combine all that together you got an easy um, 44, yeah, 44 grams of protein, like all simple stuff. It just takes a, like a little time to kind of figure this out. And then when you find the rhythm, it's just going to happen naturally. And, you know, going back to vegetables, like there's so many different ways to cook them, to make them taste good. Like just Google it. I always, when clients are having a tough time, I will spend the time to go on Google, find like 30 recipes that are healthy for people who have a tough time getting vegetables in, find it, download it, put it into your phone, go buy the ingredients, go do it. Um, and then the other thing too is I, that a lot of people don't think about for nutrition is sleep. 
So I kind of go back and forth between nutritional guidelines and also lifestyle guidelines. And most of us, I would say 90% of us don't get enough sleep. And if your sleep is fucked up, then your hormones are going to be fucked. And then your eating cycles are going to be fucked. The research is there. If you have, you know, one night of bad sleep, second night of bad sleep, your whole circadian rhythm falls off, and then your body will get more hungry, you're gonna end up overeating, you're gonna destroy your calorie deficit that you've been doing with your protein and vegetables, and you're back to square one. So sometimes it's not as easy as like, I need you to eat these foods for you to lose weight. Let's look at your sleep. Sleep is huge, sleep is king. If you're not getting seven to nine hours a night, you need to rethink what is, like what your priorities are in life. And you know, it's easier said than done, but again, let's make it really simple. Let's get 15 minutes extra of sleep. And that's just, all that means is like, let's get you into bed 15 minutes earlier than you did before. And again, like I love doing math, and I did this with one client, and he had a lot of trouble uh, getting sleep in, so I'm like, okay, say it's five days a week where you work at your office, if you got 15 minutes on every single day there, over a month you would have this much extra sleep, over a year you would get this much extra sleep. And because he's a numbers guy, he's like, oh shit, like that's a big difference with only 15 minutes. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't have to be like, you need to get two hours starting tomorrow, Let's break them down in small little habits. And usually that 15 minutes comes from stop watching Netflix, stop scrolling through your phone and looking at dumb shit, and let's focus on your health. Um, those are kind of the fundamentals when it comes to coaching nutrition for me. And I don't wanna make this episode super long, so I'm gonna cut it right here. And maybe I'll do like a part two where I'll I uh, show you how I coach to get a little bit more specific and maybe I can even use a case study with one of my clients and kind of show the progression sorry, and give you an inside look of how nutrition actually looks like and not this like idea that you know, you're going to do a diet for eight weeks and it's going to change your entire life. So hopefully this sheds some light on what real nutrition looks like and if you have any questions feel free to reach out. And for those who are struggling with weight loss, like take a second to listen to this. Don't give up. I've been through what you've been through. I've been through that struggle where you've tried multiple times and you're like, what the fuck? Why is this happening to me? I just wanna lose this weight. Just keep grinding it out and I promise you, you will be successful in the end. Just trust the process, be patient and be consistent. I promise you, you will get there. That's it for me. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. So, now we got that out of the way, I want to touch on supplements. First things first, when a brand new client asks me what supplements should I take, the first thing I tell them is, let's look at your nutrition, right? Supplements are to supplement what you're not getting in your diet. And a lot of people fall victim to, you know, the marketing they see online, people talking about protein shakes all the time, and in reality, you don't really need those things. But 
living in a world where everything is not as it used to be. A good example is all of our soil. The levels of, you know, like magnesium and all the minerals and vitamins that we used to get from our farmers have gone down drastically in the last 40 years. So you're going to start seeing supplements being, I, at least I think, a really important um, aspect of healthy living. Um, I try and I try to always advocate, you know, you want to eat whole foods. You want to stay away from processed crap because who knows, right? And the one thing when people ask me about supplements is they they almost look at it as an escape to, you know, outrun their bad diet. And I just don't want people to think that, yeah, you should take this supplement, this supplement, this supplement, and that's going to like fix all your issues. But in reality, you know, food should be your number one priority. But let's, you know, clean the slate, say you're eating pretty well, you're trying your best, and let's say 80% of the time you're eating really well. Yes, let's go look at supplements right now. I wouldn't, you know, throw supplements with a brand new person who's just getting started, but, you know, say you have a couple months under your belt, or, you know, it took you a year to finally figure out that eating chips and Coke for breakfast is not the best choice. Um, the first thing I advocate is protein shakes. Because one, it's super easy just to get that to start your day. And, you know, there's so many different supplement brands out there and it's hard to choose. Now, depending on where you are in the world, at least here in Canada and I believe in the United States, is the FDA has some really, really weird um, rules, regulations. So here's an example. If I wanted to start a supplement company today, I wouldn't have to go through trials of, you know, on animals or on people. I can just right away market it to people and sell it, which is kind of like crazy. Um, I can say that my protein powder has the best, you know, crap put into it. I have this and that and make all these claims that other protein brands don't have and it doesn't have to get checked, which is crazy. And I could easily put in half of what I say and no one would know any different. And a great place to check out is examine.com. They do a lot of research on supplements. And if you are worried about what your brand you're currently using, I would go out to your computer, your phone, and check examine.com and see if they've written an article or created their own research on your particular brand. So, um, the other interesting thing, I believe they did either on branch chain amino acids or protein powder to see if actually the amount of protein uh, advertised was actually in their product, and they took five major brands, put them through some um, tests, and all of them, uh, on average, um, whatever you know grams of protein they had, it was anywhere from five to seven grams less. So that is crazy. So you have to be, you kind of have to do your due diligence to know 
if you're actually getting, say, your 25 grams of protein per scoop. Um, the other crazy thing that I've learned about supplements is that when they do studies about supplements, it's only based on one supplement, not when you're using other things. So think about this. Most people, on average, use five to seven supplements a day, and that can include your protein powder, multivitamin, fish oils, like all pre-workouts, everything. So you actually don't know if that combination is actually safe for consumption. A little scary. And then you think about like bodybuilders who do like stacks of like ephedrine and a pre-workout and this and that, and you're like, holy shit, what are you doing to your body? Um, but safe bet, find a protein powder that doesn't give you an upset stomach. That's the major thing that a lot of people complain about is they try you know, a protein powder, it's either too sweet, it doesn't like sit well, and when they consume it and they go work out, they feel like it want to throw up. So there's different, you know, um, brands out there that say you're lactose intolerant, a whey protein concentrate might not be the best. And if you're getting your protein powder from Costco, that's on sale for bulk, it's probably not the best quality. So you know, I would go on Amazon and look at different options, go read up some articles and reviews, and try them. Again, protein powder is very individual, so make sure you, you know, try different brands and see what works best for you. Now, the other option is, um, you know, vegan protein powders. <sighs> you got to be careful with these because most of them taste like shit. You know, there's things where you can get protein powder from, I think it's like pumpkin seeds, alfalfa, um, hemp, there's soy, there's so many different combinations. A brand that I like to use that I found that doesn't taste like complete horse shit is Vega. Um, if you're new to vegan options, go with their sport line. It tastes a little bit better. Uh, whereas if you go with their Vega One, where it's like almost like a meal replacement shake, uh, they throw in a lot of greens powder in there, and that's where it kind of tastes kind of off. I always get, you know, if clients are gonna try a vegan option for whatever reason, I will get them to the Sport because it tastes less horrible. But the Sport line, any kind of vegan um, protein powder, in fact, is really chalky compared to regular away concentrate and then when you have to shake it you have to shake it really really freaking well so you don't get these giant clumps of protein powder and then when you drink it and it's still together you might even cough out like dried protein powder so try a bunch see what works for you see what tastes great for you the reason why i always go back to vega is that when i trained a handful of paralympic uh, swimmers they had a list of supplements they could and couldn't have. And it was a long list. And basically it was three brands of protein powder they were allowed to have, and one of them was Vega. So in my head, I was like, okay, if the Olympics allows my athletes to use Vega, there's obviously something in there that is good for human consumption. Whereas other brands that didn't make the list, I was like, hmm, I'm interested to see what substances in there that the Olympic Committee did not like. So you have to almost think about it. 
Um, the other thing with protein powders is I use them, you know, after workouts. Um, I use them to help clients who are really, really struggling to get their protein up, especially women. And I just tell them, just have one protein shake a day. Like, just go for it. And that, you know, takes that 25 to 30 grams to the next level for them. And now they're eating sufficient amounts. And then guys that I train that own their own businesses or CEOs, they have no time to be like, all right, so I'm going to make food. I'm going to pack it up and go into my office and eat it. And even when they get to that point, they don't eat it at their office. So I tell them, buy a big ass tub of protein powder, put it on your fucking desk with a shaker cup. And your goal is to have one of those a day. I don't care when, just have them. Just getting the habit and routine of having a protein shake will help in the long run. It's just actually doing it. Um, the other supplement I want to um, talk about is brand chain amino acids. You know, for the longest time I've been taking them because I do intermittent fasting. And then with the newest stuff coming out in research with Alan Aragon, that is actually a better choice to actually go with a protein shake. So I kind of stopped doing branch chain amino acids and, you know, went towards um, protein powder instead. And the other thing, if you are using branch chain amino acids, look at what's in it. Because most of the time there's a lot of filler. And when I took branch chain amino acids, I took them in pill form. There's no flavoring, no nothing. But if you actually get a powder, with flavoring, like look at the sugar content. There's a shit ton in there. Look at the coloring that they put in there and you'd be surprised how many color numbers are in there. And if you look at the research, all those you know fake colors that have numbers attached to them are not the best for human consumption and they may lead to cancer. So I tend to stay away from those and I kind of give that same advice to my clients. Um, the other thing that I bring up is my um, like multivitamin I take and also um, fish oil. So multivitamin, I think everyone should take a multivitamin. Like, like I said before, all of our soil that our food grows out of sucks compared to what it was, you know, 40 years ago. So we are deficient in um, that. And I also, for myself personally, I take a lot of vitamin D during the winter months because out here in Vancouver, we are on the 49th parallel. And speaking to Kamal Patel, who works for Examine, he was saying essentially anyone from the Californian border and up are basically vitamin D deficient. So if you're in a place that doesn't get a lot of sunshine, during the year, I'd highly recommend going with vitamin D. Um, you know, where I live, we probably get cloudy and rainy days, 300 days out of the year. And when the sun comes out, it's like, oh my God, it's so glorious. And then after one day of sun, we all complain about how hot it is. And like other parts of the world is so freaking hot compared to where Vancouver is. But anyway, Vitamin D is something you should look into um, if you're living somewhere where you don't get a lot of sunshine and that will help a lot, especially for mental health. Like me personally, like waking up in the morning super early and it's freaking dark outside and then all day it stays dark because we don't get sun. 
I get depressed and I'm like, fuck this, I don't want to do anything. The vitamin D does help. Um, fish oils, another great supplement to have um, from brain function to like better just human function. Um, I could go into so much detail with fish oil, but to keep this podcast short, I highly recommend to also go to examine.com and check out every single article they've ever written about fish oils. Um, just remember brain health, it's great. If you don't eat a lot of fish in your diet, fish oils is the way to go. And again, quality control. I know for a fact that Examine has a great article on certain brands that are higher quality. So again, FDA rules, they're kind of spotty. And if I wanted to create you know, a fish oil brand today, I could, and I could use the cheapest fish oil out there to can produce and market. So make sure you check your brands. Um, the other thing I want to touch on is creatine. Um, if you are an individual who's been training for a while and is getting really serious about strength, creatine is actually a great way to go. And a lot of people um, get misinformed that creatine is bad for you, but it's actually the most research supplement out there compared to protein and every single time they do a study it actually shows improvement in uh, human performance so i highly highly recommend if you are serious about training creatine would be great you know five grams a day on training days and make sure you go with the creatine monohydrate and not um you know a supplement that throws in a bunch of fillers and crap like that you got to be really careful with the brands that you choose so i literally go to my grocery store and they have a giant tub like this that um is just pure creatine monohydrate and by itself tastes like shit so i put it into my protein shake and you won't taste it at all and that's where i'm going to leave it off because i want this to be a supplement 101 and maybe I will do a 102 um, later on to get in depth with certain things because we're already at 20 minutes and I got to jet out of here but if you guys have any more questions about um, supplements let hey, me know what I want to talk about is supplements so I think I did only one episode on supplements way, 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 way back. And I want to revisit it because it's a topic that everyone has an opinion on. Everyone has, you know, their own way to supplement, their own way of doing things. So this kind of all sparked from a question I got from one of my patients on my opinion on pre-workout. Now, I think I'm going to start at that point because like pre-workout, honestly, I, when I first started in the industry and I worked at a big box gym and everyone was doing bodybuilding shit, you name any brand out there, I probably took their pre-workout. And Honestly, I've never really had the benefit of pre-workout. The clients that, you know, have taken it, didn't really notice a difference. 
But yet again, I'm one of those people that could have coffee at 10 p.m. at night and go to sleep right away. So I don't get any kind of effect from it. And there goes my phone. So, (laughs) the thing that I see a lot is a lot of times people will um, kind of develop a uh, tolerance to it. And I feel that a lot of times when it comes to the supplement game, and I'm going to try to grab my phone and I'm just going to hold it. Hopefully I don't get pulled over. Um, Well, there you go. Again, everyone is an individual. So personally, in my career of 10 years of training clients, I have not seen the benefit for myself taking a pre-workout or my clients. So that being said, should you take it? Who knows? Most of the time when you look at pre-workout supplements, there's going to be at least 100 to 200 calories per scoop of whatever the crap there is. And if your primary goal is fat loss, why would you want to add a couple more 100 calories to your daily intake where you could have just eaten a little bit more, you know? When it comes to energy, I would almost go down a more natural route. So why don't you just caffeine? If you look at the ingredients of most of these pre-workouts, that's the main ingredient. It's like 200 milligrams of caffeine. That's all you really need. When you look at all the other crap that they put in there, stuff that you can't really pronounce, that's worrisome for me you know a lot of times and again it's different in different parts of the world but at least here in Canada and the United States when you get into the supplement game you don't necessarily have to go through like clinical trials of human beings in order for you to sell your product so that being said it's a little scary when you're reading the label and you're like okay I can see there's caffeine there's some other things that I've noticed and other protein powders. There might be some like electrolytes and all that other crap, but most of it you can't even pronounce. And it's like, now you're putting something in your body that you have no clue what it is. And for me personally, I just, I rather know what I'm putting my you know, body through. Like, are my organs going to have a tough time filtering all this crap? You know, am I going to have some adverse effect to it? Or am I going to have an effect to it down the road? Is this going to destroy my gut health? Is it going to destroy the gut flora, the probiotics that are in there? Like, is it going to destroy all the bacteria in my gut that's good for me? Like, these are all the things you should be asking yourself. So, that being said, you know, I've used more natural pre-workouts where they have things like you know something like uh, devil's claw which is a plant that produces a little more energy as well but for me I, I always keep it simple like just like my nutrition just keep it simple if you want energy before a workout just have some freaking coffee like you don't need some 
sugar-filled thing. And like, this is the other thing. I remember reading a great article through examine.com where they took the five biggest um, protein brands out there and wanted to test to actually see if the amount of grams of protein that they were um, advertising actually held true. And all five of these major protein brands that you can go get at any like GNC or any kind of um, supplement store, they all fail miserably. Like they were usually about five to seven grams off from what they were advertising. And then this is the other scary thing with the supplement industry is that you don't actually have to have whatever you say in your supplement. You can say, yeah, I have 30 grams of protein in this um, protein shake brand, but you can put 20 if you really want to. Like, that's some scary shit. So, you know, personally, I don't really take any supplements at all. Like, nothing. Like, I'll go through phases where I'll have protein shakes, but right at this moment, I'm not really feeling it. The only kind of supplements I'm taking are some natural ones that my wife uh, told me to take based on what she's learning from school. And for those who don't know, she's in med school right now, um, becoming a naturopathic doctor. So things like fish oils and things like adrenal support, things like magnesium, things like um, like a, moto, a mitochondrial booster. Those are the things I'm taking right now. Again, all created from natural sources, aka naturopaths will go down a natural source, right? When you start mass producing supplements who knows if it's coming from a good source? Who knows if um, it's gone through any kind of trial, right? When you look at the supplement industry on the whole, like walk into any supplement store, there are thousands of different pre-workouts, BCAAs, there's post-workout stuff, there's electrolytes, there's so much crap out there and there's so many other brands that compete against each other and they don't have to go through any kind of, you know, processing, quality control, whatever. The only time where the FDA actually looks at a supplement brand is if it causes some serious health issues. So if you look back into the 90s when hydroxycut was a huge thing that almost everyone was taking they started having reported cases of people having seizures and then hydroxycut kind of stepped back. They had to reformulate everything. And now they kind of came back. Like you can still find their shit in like Walmart and any other big chain like that in the supplement um, section. So my whole take on supplements is like, if you're not hitting um, the basic needs of your nutrition, there's no point of taking supplements at this point. Especially if you can't, you know, commit yourself to eating like 12 servings of vegetables a day and eating protein at every single meal, having good carbs and drinking 
at least 12 glasses of water and sleeping eight hours every single day, then you have no business getting into supplements. Like it's called a supplement because it's supplementing something you're not getting in. Now, if you wanted something specific of like what you should be taking, this is where I always refer out to a naturopathic doctor that has a lot of experience when it comes to um, prescribing supplements. And a lot of times it's like they'll hit three major things is some sort of fish oil, some sort of magnesium, and some sort of like adrenal support. Because those are the three major things that everyone kind of lacks. And it also depends on the quality that gets put into there but here's the other thing that most people don't think about most of these supplements have to go through your digestive system and what happens if you don't actually have a healthy digestive system your body's not going to absorb the nutrients from the pills you're taking the powders you're taking you name it it's just gonna filter through and you might take you know one-fourth of the benefit and now you're paying maybe a hundred bucks a month on supplements that you're not actually you know absorbing the way they should right and like I've learned so much about gut health this past three years like if your gut is not functioning the way it should it's not uptaking any kind of nutrients from your food so people that always feel tired low energy, they might have some sort of gut issue. You know, sometimes you need to take a step back further and really hammer out the fundamentals on, you know, gut health. Because everything that you ingest with your mouth has to go through a whole process in order to absorb the proteins, the carbs, the fats, the minerals out of every single food that we eat in order for our bodies to function. But if you don't feel like you're at your optimal level of performance, then how are you supposed to support your um, goals of fat loss and weight loss or even muscle gain if you can't even simply absorb the food that you're eating? And now you're layering on top supplements that you're paying pretty high dollar for you're not really getting the benefit. So it all starts with the fundamentals, not only when it comes to exercise, but also when it comes to eating and having good gut health. You know, like a book that I read probably two years ago that was super eye-opening, but also made real, real simple sense is the mind-gut health uh, connection. And you need, I highly, highly recommend reading that to understand where I'm coming from when it comes to should you take supplements or not. You know, I could go on and on about the benefits of protein powder and creatine and all those things, but they don't mean anything to anyone unless their gut is at 100% to be able to absorb those supplements to give you the benefit. So, you know, long story short, supplements have their role. Supplements can help a lot when it comes to your health, but if you don't have a 
gut that can actually absorb it, there's no point, right? So a lot of times people, this, this happens in my industry a lot, people look at steps like 17, 18, 19 before masterings one, mastering like steps one through five. They always do this, you know, like I'll get questions where clients ask me like, oh, how many grams of sugar should I be eating per day? And I'm like, bro, you don't even eat vegetables. Why are you thinking about that? You know what I mean? Like that's equivalent to you like, all right, so when I make a million dollars, where what should I invest with it? It's like, how about you pay off your credit card debt first before you start thinking about investing money you don't have? That's literally the best analogy I can give you in this point. When people start worrying about nutritional steps that they don't actually need to worry about. Like, it makes no sense to me. Like, this whole fat loss and nutrition thing, people go beyond what they're supposed to all the time. When really it's like the basics. Always go back to the basics. I can't stress that enough. Right? Like, I would not try to start investing a million dollars when really I should start putting a hundred bucks a month away in my bank account. Like, simple, simple things like that. So, I'm going to end it there. Thank you for listening to me ramble about... Today, I'm going to talk about myself. That's right. Um, Because I had a question sent to me, I think it was through Instagram or an email, I can't remember, but a lot of people wonder what the hell I do for nutrition. (laughs) So, I also kind of came up with this idea because... um, couple weeks back and I actually just posted it today uh, the link to a podcast interview that I was on and the host asked me what I do for nutrition and really I don't really talk about my nutrition because it's boring as fuck it's not complicated kind of like how I spew my nutrition advice all the time like keep it simple that's all it is anyway um, to give an idea of what I do so I do intermittent fasting And the reason why I do intermittent fasting, because um, probably eight years ago now, when I was obsessed with everything precision nutrition and following John Berardi's work like a hawk, he wrote a blog post about him experimenting with intermittent fasting. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting, like not eating when you first wake up like that's crazy that's that's blasphemy you know like breakfast is the most important important uh, the most important meal of the day so I was like you know what I'm gonna do it for a month see how it goes and from there never stopped it just worked really really well in my life and how I structured my life so how I eat is I eat breakfast, not breakfast, like my first meal at um, 12 p.m. Sometimes I go a little bit later, sometimes I go a little bit earlier, not a big deal. And then my last meal is at 8 p.m. So two meals a day and that's it. Like it's not rocket science. And then when it comes to like specifics of what I eat, I eat a shit ton of protein And right now, I'm not very precise 
last year I was really precise with what I was putting in my body. Um, but because of COVID and the whole world turning upside down, I kind of like got a little bit not lazy, just not as attention to detail. So I just make sure that every time I have food in front of me, majority of the plate is filled with protein. The other majority is vegetables and some sort of carbohydrate, be it bread, rice, noodles, whatever the fuck it, I cooked along with my wife for the week. That's what I have. And as long as I, you know, have a huge amount of protein and veggies, I'm happy, you know, and you know, lately hard liquor, why not? You know, I'll alternate between tequila and rum. That's, that's literally the secret of what I eat. So now you probably want some more context. Raph, aren't you super freaking hungry all the time though? Eating only two meals and not eating until 12 when you wake up. No. And I'll tell you why. When I first started intermittent fasting eight years ago, the first two weeks were fucking terrible. I was hungry all the time and angry. But on the flip side, I was also waking up at 4.30 every day to go train clients first thing in the morning. And again, when you're up for longer, your body's like system starts working a little bit earlier than usual. So your hormones are going to start working and sending signals and things like that. So the longer you're awake, technically you should be you know, eating more. So that first two weeks was fucking terrible. All my hunger hormones were just going off the fucking rails to tell me to eat. But I tried my best to always hit that 12 p.m. mark. Now, there is such a thing where you can re-regulate your hormones. Because remember, your body likes to be on a cycle. It likes to be on a predictable schedule. You throw it off the schedule, fuck, red alerts, red alarms go off like crazy. And your body doesn't know what the fuck is going on. Right? That's why your body does really well when you tend to eat the same things with high nutrition value, go to sleep around the same time, and get enough adequate sleep. It likes to be exercised every single day. Like, it's not rocket science. Like, feed the body what it needs, and it's going to do its thing. So, after that initial, like, shock phase, because my body thinks I'm, like, starving and dying, um, it slowly started, like getting quieter with those you know red alerts to a point where I always would get hungry like within 20 minutes of that 12 o'clock time period and then I'll just eat and sometimes like I tell people like self-experiment when you do diets like when I had um this idea to do intermittent fasting I was like okay well I'll give it a shot and worst case scenario if I get hungry I'll just eat so I think in the first couple days like I made it three hours in before I'm like, holy shit, I need to eat. Like, hunger is not an emergency, you know? It's similar to like, and I've said this before in my podcast, like, that feeling you're like, oh shit, I need to go to the bathroom and take a piss. Like, you're not going to pee your pants right there when you feel it the first time. You can like, get the message and be like, okay, brain, I gotcha, but I'm not going to go pee right now because I'm watching a movie and I don't want to miss anything 
and then the signal will come again a little bit later, and then you hold it again, and then you get the signal again, and you're like, okay, I'm going to pee, and then you go. You know what I mean? Hunger is the same way. When you get that initial hunger response, your body's not going to die. It's just telling you that, hey, you should look for food pretty soon here. And you can, you know, quiet that a lot before you really need to eat something. So when I got past that barrier, like I re, you know, tuned my body to get hungry at a certain time and just knows that every day at around 12 o'clock I'm going to eat and it's good. It became a habit and that's it. And you know, intermittent fasting, when it first came out, when some bloggers found out about it, they started saying how it's like a biohack of your body and how you can be more productive and blah, blah, and like, yeah, kind of, not really. But I get where they're getting at because when I started doing intermittent fasting, I was able to like just wake up, get coffee, go to work, bang out like five to six hours of clients, then eat. I didn't have to worry about getting to work, eating a breakfast burrito, wherever the hell I had at the time, and then, you know, go on the training floor, be starving two hours in, have my client on the treadmill for three minutes, and then run back into the staff room, down a fucking shake where you almost want to throw up, and then you're back on the floor, and then you're hungry again around lunchtime. In this case, I didn't have to sweat that. I just drank a shit ton of water, coffee, black coffee, by the way, and that was it. Like, it just worked with my schedule. Now, if I liked food, for example, in the first thing in the morning, then it's going to be a harder sell for myself or for a client that wants to do intermittent fasting. Or on the flip side, say someone who feels nauseous when they don't eat first thing in the morning, then yeah, they should eat in the morning, right? It all kind of depends on your body. I find a lot of times people overanalyze any diet out there. Like find what works for your body. Like if you're a type of person that enjoys waking up, having something to eat, having some coffee and then doing your thing, then fucking do it. Like as long as you're in a calorie deficit, you're going to lose weight. And that's the nice thing about intermittent fasting too is like, the chances of you overeating is pretty slim to none. And eating two meals a day within, say, maintenance calories, those meals tend to be a lot bigger than, like, your four to five a day or six because that's what you read in a men's health magazine, right? So it's a little bit more visually appealing, and it doesn't feel like you're on a diet too, right? So I tend to eat two really big meals a day. But again, I work out five days a week. And right now I'm teaching five kin stretch classes a week. So I have 10 hours of activity. So I kind of need those extra calories right now. And honestly, my clothes have been fitting better and everything. So I'm on the right path. Um, To kind of put more context into how I'm eating every day, I alternate between protein. So like a couple days it's fish. The other days it's just eggs and a protein shake some other meals is like pork chicken um like any kind of meat you can think of i kind of alternate because my wife hates eating the same thing so we alternate a lot um vegetables been super lazy right now with prepping vegetables so i literally get the bags from costco of broccoli and cauliflower 
and packaged hummus. And I can literally eat that every single day, no problem. And then I also have like green beans, those frozen vegetables that you just like boil, saute, boom, done. Just just downing my freaking... Um, I just passed by a property and there's a straight up performance with a dude acting like Elvis. What the fuck? That's so random. Um, yeah, like I just keep it simple. And during the times between my meals, I'm either drinking black coffee or some sort of herbal tea because I've been really into teas lately. And even after my last meal at 8 p.m. or even like 7, because like who the fuck cares if you eat an hour earlier, like I'm not going to explode or anything. I'll drink chamomile tea right before bed. Like people sometimes just want to eat because they're bored. They have nothing else to do. And like, this is why a lot of people during the lockdown for COVID, they gained weight. It's because like they're sitting at home bored. They're like, oh, you know, I can eat. And it was only like 90 minutes since your last meal. Or like they're watching a movie on Netflix. They already ate dinner, but they're going to go through a whole fucking bag of popcorn or chips. Like, These are the things, like, if you look back in the day before we had all this industrialization of our world, you didn't always think about eating. You're always doing something. You're always busy, right? Remember when you were a kid back in the day where you could just, like, go outside all day, play with your friends, and your mom would call you back home to eat dinner, and you're like, oh, my God, I have to go home and eat dinner and stop playing with my friends? Like, your body can go without food for a very long time. And the traditional, like, intermittent fasting, actually, circling back to that, is um, that guy was taking a selfie on the freaking bus um, bus stop in the reflection to show off his mask. Man, today is just freaking awesome. Anyway, um, is to experiment with a 24-hour fast. And I've done that. I've actually done a 36-hour fast, and I was fine. Like, yeah, I was like hunger came and went, but I wasn't dying, right? Your body can go to extreme lengths when it comes to nutrition. But that being said, that's kind of a, an overview of what I do for food, right? Sometimes, like, I've experimented where, you know, it's my time for dinner, last meal of the day, and I'm like, honestly, I'm not that hungry. And then what happens is I'm like, you know what? Let's go to a point where I see if I actually have to eat. And I've done this multiple times where I've um, gone to bed without dinner. And then the next day around 12 o'clock, I felt true hunger. I was like, oh, damn, like I'm actually really hungry, right? So experiment with your body and how you eat like there's no clear rules of what you need to do and what not to do so that's going to be it for now like i feel like i could have like spoken about this topic for like an hour um but yeah that's it for me you guys thank you thank you thank you so much you guys are amazing um share this podcast with your friends and family Give me a five-star review, and I'm going to continue giving you the best fitness and health advice out there. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are awesome. Guys, that's going to wrap up this special, special compilation of my top five most listened episodes in 2021. Thank you so much for supporting me from day one, yesterday, a month ago, a year ago, wherever you started with me. Thank you so much. And huge, huge little inside scoop. I'm going to be releasing the release date for my new ebook, The Ironclad Body Training System Volume 2, this weekend on Sunday. So it's a little, you know, Christmas gift for you guys. So get ready for that. If you haven't done so already, hit the show notes, add me on Facebook, add me on Instagram. I said this at the end of every single episode to, you know, continue seeing, you know, video footage of me training, exercise tips, exercise tutorials, and also subscribe to my YouTube channel and also put your name on the pre-sale list for my book so you can get it first and with a discount. Like, it's a win-win. And again, thank you so much. You guys have been such a huge support system for me. All the people who have reached out and for those who haven't, like, DM me. You'll be surprised. I'm going to DM you back to help you. So let's finish off 2021 strong and let's crush 2022 until next time you guys